0: WAPG Airline Pilot Guy
1: Airline Pilot Guy episode 308 Flight clear for takeoff. Roger Roger Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff your host broadcasting live from Studio 632 in the Embassy Suites recording studios in Louisville, Kentucky. In this episode, free beer, a Pegasus 737 crash update, more news your feedback and the latest plane tales installment, Landomatic. Matic. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 308 is ready for pushback. Hello everyone and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your questions and much much more. And uh, let's see. I'm an captain. I'm a captain for a major US legacy carrier based in the Atlanta area and joining me today From her beautiful lakeside estate in South Carolina, she's a doctor, a skydiver, a marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Also head of HR here at the APG, Dr. Stephanie Plummer.
2: Hello, Captain Jeff. Good to see you again. Seems like I just saw you, but great to be back here for our show today. Looking forward to it, doesn't it?
1: i'm sorry i interrupted you there okay no worries i just i'm i think it was because i have that uh, wonderful music in the background that uh, sir neville bounds created for us and uh, i like listening to that i like listening to your voice too though sorry and also joining us from a sprawling country estate southwest of london professional photographer Former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick Anderson.
3: Uh, stop making so much noise. You're keeping me away. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Hi, Steph. Hi, Dana. Hi, Hi. Yeah, great to be joining you at gone 10 o'clock at night in the UK and facing a Another three hour marathon. I can't wait. Thank you very much. This is marvelous. I'm having such a good time. <laughs> I don't, you're not really very
1: convincing there. <laughs> well, anyway, we're happy to see you. And uh, sure also you joining much. us from a studio location that he is going to uh, divulge to us shortly. Uh, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana Colton.
4: Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm going to sound like a not not my normal self today, and I'm um, reporting to you from Houston, Texas, downtown at the Marriott Marquis. Beautiful uh, afternoon here in the Houston area. However, I just woke up from my nap, so I didn't get to enjoy very much of it. But great to be back and miss everybody. It's been a while, and uh, we'll talk more, I guess, in a little bit. Okay, very good. And uh,
1: rest your voice up a little bit so we'll can. we get all caught up with you here in a moment. But I guess the first thing that we should talk about, and unfortunately, Dana, you hear him. He's still a little bit sick, and uh, he wasn't able to join us in London, but uh, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, and I, And a whole bunch of uh, other folks in the PTUK community uh, met up in London. I flew over on Friday, got there Friday morning. I believe that's when Steph and her brothers arrived as well. And uh, we all uh, got together and celebrated the Plain Talking UK podcast's 200th anniversary on Saturday. But uh, we met up with a bunch of people on Friday, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and had a blast. And uh, that's where we'll start with the intro for this show. So what do you think, Steph? Did you have a good time?
0: That
2: was awesome. Um, yeah, just like Captain Jeff, we got there Friday morning. Um, I went over with my brothers. They had never been to London before, so it wasn't a very long trip for us. We came back home on Sunday, so we had all day Friday to kind of run around the city and kind of do all the touristy things, which I think we managed a good job of doing. Um, got in around, I don't know, just before 7 a.m. Um, we were able to drop our stuff at the hotel. And then we went back out, kind of started at Buckingham Palace and managed to see changing of the guard there. And then kind of worked our way through London and finally ended up all the way down by uh, tower bridge, tower of London. <clears throat> Excuse me. Starting to sound like Dana a little bit too. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, Saw the crown jewels. Um, we really looked out on Friday. I think it was a, a nice, is kind of cold and windy, but it was sunny out, so made for getting around the city. Um, made it a little bit easier. But uh, my uh, the uh, London weather that I know and love so well every time I come uh, to visit returned on Saturday. It was a little dreary and rainy, but that didn't matter at all because that's when uh, Plain Talking UK's 200th episode was and. We had a great time at their uh, at the seven thirty seven flight simulator, doing that and meeting everyone and doing the episode with them, and that was great fun. And thanks to those guys for doing
3: such a wonderful job of that. I was just going to say, uh, Steph, it was January. I mean, what, what were you expecting?
2: <laughs> I have been there in July, and it's been rainy and cold. So uh,
3: we turned that on specially for you. But I
2: think so. I think January,
3: so. we just can't avoid it, regardless. <laughs> yeah, I, that kind of weather that
1: we had on Saturday and Sunday is the kind of weather that I was just expecting. And on Friday it was absolutely gorgeous. A little chilly, but a little chilly. Well, that's what I was I'm saying. It was yeah. it was just
2: really we got I think lucky with a nice day to yeah we did run around and yeah. see the city. So and, that was and
3: don't forget, all our weather comes from America. Uh huh.
2: Not from my part.
1: America. I don't no,
3: think so. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I think it comes across yeah. the Atlantic, and you send it here, and it just dumps on us.
1: No, but we're just getting what you sent us that's already been mm-hmm. all the way around yeah, the world. it's just circled
4: around. Uh, yeah. no, I don't think that way. You're not going to come. Anyway. Um, Actually, you know what you're getting? You're getting fish urine. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> well, it's coming across the ocean. You're getting fish urine. Fish urine. There's our show okay, title right enough. there. um <laughs> not, It's not coming anywhere from America. Can't. Yeah. Yeah. Three thousand miles of ocean. So it's fish urine. Okay. Maybe a little feces too. We missed you, Dana. Where have you been?
3: <laughs> exactly right. Working.
1: Yeah. Working. Where have you been? Oh, now wait a minute. The first week that uh, you weren't with us, uh, a couple of episodes ago, you were not working.
4: I was working very you're hard.
1: Working the bar, maybe working exactly. working that uh, free drink working. card or whatever—not free, but. So how was that cruise?
4: Yeah. Well, I'm not interrupting. Continue with what you're talking. Okay, I'll okay, tell- okay. I'll talk in a minute. Okay. <laughs> uh,
1: we'll bounce back over to the uh, PTUK celebration. Well, you know, first of all, uh, the night before, I guess Thursday evening, uh, Captain Nick was up in uh, Cosford, I think RAF Cosford. That right? Yeah,
3: that's up near, um, Manchester. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's the RAF museum. It's also the place, uh, where, um, the RAF, uh, museum exhibits are all maintained, maintained, excuse me. So it's a big engineering, uh, base up there and, uh, they do all the work on the exhibits. They, uh, preserve, uh, um, stuff that they've dragged out of the ocean. They've got a dawning ass there, uh, which is, uh, encrusted in uh, um, in salt, and they've done their best to preserve that, although I don't know how successful that will be. It's pretty far gone. They've got a Hudson there, which they're restoring. So it's a fa- fascinating place, brilliant museum, apart from anything else, got some great exhibits. But uh, as you'll probably recall, I was re- uh, invited to do a talk there. Um, ably supported, I might say, and thank you very much indeed for uh, Nev, who came up, and then in the audience, uh, we found Pip, and uh, Adam Spink, and... Um, Nev? Uh, yeah, I mentioned oh. Uh, there was one, one there's Nev. Oh, and was Nev. Don't forget him. Yeah, and Nev. And, and uh, there are about four other uh, APG listeners uh, had pitched up, uh, sadly, who... I didn't write down their names, so I'm terribly sorry. I should have done. But I was just all a bit busy. It was all happening a bit quick. And uh, so f- forgive me for not remembering your names. But however, one of them has sent in some feedback, which was very clever because we'll get his name out tonight. All that right. you know. So that talk went uh, um, well. I was very pleased. Uh,
1: I was able to listen to it because uh, you or we posted it as um, an extra uh, crew log kind of a, a preview uh, before it's released to the general public. Uh, if you're um, a member of the Coffee Fund cadre, uh, you have already um, perhaps listened to that wonderful talk that uh, Captain Nick gave at the Royal Aeronautical Society.
3: Yeah, that was thanks to Nev and his fantastic audio equipment that we've recorded that. And then I've handed uh, the presentation, all the photographs uh, that I showed everyone, and the talk. And uh, Matt from PTUK is very kindly going to marry the two together and turn it into a YouTube uh, video that we will eventually be able to release for everyone to watch. So, oh, nice. And it will make a little more sense because when I refer to the photographs in the uh, audio, of course, there's nothing for you to see when you've got audio only. It makes a bit more sense when you've got the, we'll have the pictures there as well. Cool. Well, you don't want to miss that! So that was a really nice evening. They took us out for a meal afterwards, and uh, then uh, slept, uh, paid for the hotel, and slept, uh, and then drove down to PTUK on the Friday to join you guys. So uh, it was all in all, it's been it was a great three days that I had. Yeah, I got in uh, Friday
1: morning after flying all night, and um, I uh, met up with Fabian, who flew in from uh, Düsseldorf, uh, Germany. And he had never been to London downtown and seen the sites. And actually, I had not either. And so the two of us uh, continued on our day pass on the uh, underground and went uh, to Trafalgar Square and the uh, Parliament building and saw Big Ben and all the sites that uh,
2: kind of Steph saw Big Ben
1: sort of right. saw that we saw the, the, the actual clock face. Of Big rest of it's
2: under scaffolding right yeah, now, it was so. all
1: covered up. But we we got the kind of I, the idea. Yeah. Uh, went over the Thames River many many times, saw uh, St Paul's Cathedral, uh, Westminster Abbey, and all those you know touristy things. And uh, I was really dragging. Uh, you know, Fabian is a uh, a much younger man than myself, and uh, I was kind of getting worn out, especially because I only had like you know maybe two or three hours of sleep on the journey over. And so finally, I convinced him that we needed to go back to the hotel because I had uh, this idea that I was going to take a nap. And so I got to the hotel and somebody was saying, oh, uh, yeah, Nick and uh, Captain Al and uh, Graham and uh, some others were over. uh, Oh, oh, Phil was there as well. Uh, They were at the what was it called? The King's Arms uh, pub or something. And yeah, we uh, called
3: it the King's Head, which was a bit of a bum steer. uh, (laughs) King's Head. But you eventually found us, damn it.
1: Yeah, well, Fabian found you guys, and then I was thinking, (laughs) okay, now I'm going to go ahead and take my nap. Well-deserved, I'd say. And uh, then I got this uh, message from Captain Al that basically chided me uh, very uncharitably uh, that uh, I should not be sleeping. I should be over there at the pub with you all. So I didn't get my nap, and uh, you you forced me to drink at the pub, but I'm glad you did. So we had a great time. That was just the beginning. I
3: some, some okay beers there. It was quite good. Yeah. Nice pub. Then we went over good to – Good food. I was starved.
1: We had a curry over at an Indian restaurant uh, not far from the simulator where the event took place on Saturday. Uh, but Friday night, that's where we all uh, – many of us, what, 20-something of us met at the uh, Taj Mahal uh, restaurant.
2: Yeah,
3: quite a few. Yeah, and again, the nice uh, audio um, for the Patreons from the Curry House.
1: Yes. Yes. See what you're missing out if you're not a member of the coffee fund cadre. We'll uh, give you information about how you can join that group, that August group later here in the show. Um, yeah, and then of course Saturday was the big day. Uh, the uh, we most of us met for breakfast in the hotel, had a full English breakfast, and then uh, walked over to the uh, the venue for the event, the simulator complex. What was the name of a flight experience? Is that the name of it? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right.
2: NP something, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I didn't catch that part. But anyway, the uh, the folks that run the thing um, and uh, help me with the names, uh, Paul and uh, some other folks Nick. over there.
3: Nick, Nick, Paul and thank Nick. you. <laughs> Paul
1: and Nick were uh, gracious hosts and our uh, our instructors for the simulator, the seven thirty seven simulator. And uh, we, we recorded a show, or actually Matt and Nev and Carlos uh, recorded PTUK 200, and it was a really, really cool setup. So again, we had a blast. Anything else to add?
3: Yeah, you're right. It was called Flight Experience Flight Simulator um, is the name of it, and you can find it on TripAdvisor where it's got an excellent rating and uh, very reasonable to uh, get a session in there if you want to have a go at flying uh, a Boeing. Now, I won't knock it uh, in relation to this because, of course, any airliner would be good if you don't normally fly them. But, of course, uh, anyone with any choice would wait until they get their Airbus A320 simulator in there, which won't be too long in coming, and then you can fly a real airplane. Yeah, it's coming uh, sometime this year, I believe. Yep. Yep, absolutely. All right.
1: Uh, let's see. It was really, really cool. Uh, we've heard about, uh, Steph's brothers, uh, many, many times, but, uh, I've not met them in person and we got to hang out with them, uh, for the, for the two, three days over there and, uh, uh, really, really nice meeting your brothers, Steph.
2: They enjoyed meeting everyone as well. They actually had a very good time. Good. So
1: was I was a little worried, pass. you know, that they'd be bored or something, but it seemed like they were enjoying nope. the whole thing.
2: Nope, they had a, had a great time. And actually I think, uh, While people were taking their turns in the stimulator, they found a pub down the street and uh, made several trips down there before we went out to dinner. After (laughs) that, no wonder they were so happy
1: and and (laughs) jovial.
2: (laughs) They had a great, they had a great time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, now
4: Dana. Wow. I have one question. Wow. <laughs> I have one question. Yeah. You mentioned they're going to put an Airbus simulator into that building and, and in the same sentence, a real airplane. Well, when are they going to put a Mad Dog simulator in there?
3: Because that's a real airplane. There you go. Well, it, it's a it's a modern simulator, not a museum thing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, It boy. belongs to Madame Tussauds, I guess. Yeah, you, you, you stick them up there and I'll give them a whack. I don't mind <laughs> like that
1: at all. <laughs> Uh, so, tell us, Dana, about that uh, cruise that you took
4: uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, first, let me go and say I really missed being in England. I hated that I chose not to come on over, but as you can hear, I'm uh, I'm not under the weather as bad as I would have been under the weather if I had gone to England in in did a 24 hour turnaround uh, within. Uh, you know, flying both ways over the ocean So it just uh, it wasn't I didn't have it in me So I'm, in some respects Very disappointed that I didn't get to go Because it sounds like you guys Had an absolutely fantastic time I certainly would have been lo- loving to be there uh, For uh, PTUK's 200th episode That's really the whole reason why I wanted to go uh, But And I do apologize to you guys if I For if not being there um, Enough said on that I'm already bummed out enough as it is. um we <laughs> hadn't had really time. had that
1: much of a good time it was
4: really kind oh, of yeah, a bore. So, yeah so fun of, of bo malarkey <laughs> <laughs> so anyways uh cruise was uh, um let's see what do i remember of it
1: <laughs> not a whole lot <laughs> apparently you used that uh drinking uh coupon or whatever you had uh well
4: well you know it was uh, all you could drink kind of like going to a Chinese for a buffet and they say "You eat too much you leave now <laughs> well they can't throw they can't throw me off the boat but uh it was uh, it, it's it's forty three dollars a day plus an eighteen dollar eighteen percent gratuity and you can walk up and have as many drinks as you want so first day I started off a little uh Little motion on the ocean there i i have to v- venture to guess I, I didn't look at the final tally but myself alone over seven days probably in the area of 120 ish drinks or more wow yeah <laughs> wow i guess you got your money's got, worth it i really got my money and but the problem was is i was with 18 other uh, excuse me 16 other people every week one of them a drinker in a party year and we had an absolutely fantastic time the the ship itself uh mixed reviews the thing is just too stinking big too many people there was 6400 people on the boat and a lot of them were foreigners and uh i don't know if they had vacation going on over in europe or what was going on but Normally, that boat doesn't carry that many people, but it's because everybody had their kids on board. And when I tell you there were kids everywhere, there were kids everywhere. So, normal capacity on that boat, two per room, is only 5,200. So, we were way over maxed. Wow. Um, the shows on the boat, fantastic. Uh, they, Broadway, Mama Mia, Broadway, Broadway uh, Mama Mia. Um, and a very big surprise when we got on the first night, I heard some piano music and I said, you know, my wife and I would love uh, listening to live piano, um, in a, in a, in a singer. And we're walking up there. It's a one deck up above on the ship. I'll describe the ship here in a second. And we're walking down towards the piano bar and I said, geez, that sounds awful familiar. And as we walk closer, it was the same piano player that we had on the Cuba cruise. He is fantastic. His name is Gregor, uh, Greg, uh, and he's actually from France and lives in England. And went to the conservatory in England, I think, is what it's called, uh, for his training. Fantastic. So we enjoyed the entire week with him. Uh, the best way I can describe this boat, you know, other than being sixty, you know, four hundred people on there, um, is you take two towers, put it on each side of the boat, and join them at the front. And have an open open back, and that in leave the middle completely empty. They put so much in the middle. They put um, a, a promenade, which is a two story open f- uh, for about uh, I don't know maybe a football field length uh, open two story with restaurants, bars, shopping. Uh, your customer service. Then they have this bar in the middle that goes up and down three stories as you're, as you're sitting there floating on something saucer or a spaceship. Um, And then that would go up to the third uh, three story decade, which was, uh, uh, park uh, the central park which was a I couldn't can believe on a on a ship living plants and living trees plants all over it was like you stepping into central park new york with uh sidewalk cafes restaurants bar it was phenomenal and on the back of the ship on deck six uh, but, you know, back part of it that's still open was an open deck called the Boardwalk. And they had a moving carousel in the way in the back of the ship. They had a big open aqua theater where they had uh, divers doing this unbelievable show at sea diving from, I think, it was uh, about 30, 35 feet in the air into a small pool. Maybe that's 15 feet wide. Uh, it you know it, it was quite daring. They had to cancel quite a bit because the cruise itself uh, we had a lot of rough weather, a lot of rough seas. Um, and most of most of the crews had to wear my jacket if I went outside because it was chilly. That massive cold front, uh, massive uh, freeze that came down through the U.S. east eastern seaboard went all the way down to the Caribbean. Uh, it was even chilly down on the islands. So. Uh, well, I wouldn't say chilly compared to New York, but I would say oh, Boston. I would say chilly like not in the normal mid to upper 80s in the upper 70s. So uh, all in all, it was a great trip. Then came back, and uh, as you hear me now, I uh, we had a little snowstorm in the following week when I went back to work. Started off the trip with a four-hour delay going to San Antonio with an ice storm. As soon as we got back, well, before we even left Atlanta, I got rerouted, which was eight and a half hours before we got back to Atlanta. Captain went pretty much on his original rotation. They took me off mine. I don't understand why. Ended up flying with four different captains over a three-day period, and one of which I know you've heard this term before, most of you. Uh, I hear of a white slip. White slip is when you pick up an extra trip on your days off for regular pay, No, no overtime, not a green slip, which you've heard. Uh, Captain uh, Jeff talk about this guy shows up and he's hooting, hauling sick. And he starts talking and say, yeah, I'm sick, but you know, I figured to pick it up. I'm, I'm almost over it. And I picked up this white slip and I looked at him and I said, you did what? And you're still sick. Are you out of your mind? So my off days spent sick, I feel okay now because I've been on antibiotics several days, but I ended up festering into a nice infection and costing me the trip to London. So anyways, that's what's happened for me for the last couple of weeks. And i fortunate to be back here. I am working. I, I don't feel bad. I sound bad, but I don't feel bad. I feel absolutely perfectly fine. i um, just been resting quite a bit and uh, happy to be here. Excellent. How's the uh, weather there in Houston today? The oh my, it's a beautiful day. Unfortunately, I I well for, I went out for a great lunch. I figured I would try to massage my voice with a little bit of uh, pho, for those folks that that's Vietnamese soup, uh, very close cousin to the uh, Jewish penicillin, which is what I would normally have chicken soup um, to hopefully massage the voice a little bit. Just had some. If you're watching the show, you can see I have chloroseptic. I'm trying everything for my voice to be here normal. Um, so I came back afterwards. I was going to go work out for a little while and lay down on the couch to look, I mean, lay down in the bed for a couple minutes. The next thing you know, I was supposed to be up at, uh, in time to start the show at four uh, 30 local time, about four 45, uh, East coast time. I woke up, <laughs> realized that the show had already started. Well, actually it had so, not quite yet. We were almost starting. You're almost ready to start, yeah. but yeah, I was like, I was like, Oh my God. So yeah, <laughs> I getting, getting some good rest and, uh, Finish up the trip tomorrow. Hillel, I was in Baltimore last night, Hillel. I didn't contact you for the reason why you're hearing is because my voice, and I am. I did not want to take the chance of passing it on, but I did go to my favorite restaurant in Baltimore. Um, I went over there to a fantastic Italian restaurant. Uh, Nino is the owner. You've heard me talk about it before, and that's La Scala in the in – the, um, in little Italy, it's okay, unbelievable Italy. food yeah. again. It doesn't disappoint, so awesome. And uh, on, on another note, I haven't had one drink. Oh, no, that's a lie. I had uh, <laughs> Patriots will play on Sunday. I try to hydrate a little bit with a little bit of vodka on Sunday. But since the cruise, I haven't had any. I have not had any drinks, and I don't plan on drinking anytime soon. Love it. Hydrate <laughs> with vodka. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Except there's yeah.
2: another large football game coming up on uh, February 4th. I really? I, I
1: thought the football was all over with.
2: I think I think it's over. It I is.
1: mean,
4: <laughs> my, yeah. yeah, I think that's uh, well gone conclusion. <laughs> Maybe Premier League is over. I don't know. I haven't <laughs> been following that, but there is one more game. It's. Uh, I'm not playing with my Brazier here, but I am highlighting in the video the logo that I'm wearing. That's the Patriots are going to the Super Bowl. What a surprise! The New England Patriots Yay! are back in the Super yeah. Bowl again.
0: Yay.
3: Yeah. Yay. Actually, I'm looking forward Yay. to watching that cuz I always like the uh the mid-game adverts cuz they're really good. Yeah,
2: yes. Uh, That's what people usually just watch the Super Bowl for. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then there's some <laughs> people like me that actually like watching the game and the commercials. So it's like win-win yeah. for me. Exactly. Is Janet Jackson in this one? No. I don't think Done. so. Done. No, no expositions. Doesn't <laughs> Timberlake is. So. Oh. Maybe they'll be in there. All right. I don't know oh, that should be fun. Okay. Uh, Excellent. So, um, Steph, uh, were you involved in any kind of a meetup since our last uh, show?
2: I was. So, um, listeners may remember that uh, Corey, one of our listeners who is uh, starting a new job as a first officer for a regional carrier, um, actually wrote us couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think. And he was going to be being interviewed by the CBS Evening News um, while he was here in Charlotte and trying to also figure out a time to meet up with me. Um, Unfortunately, I was pretty busy during those last couple weeks with... I was also on a cruise and then we were in London. Um, And... uh, Fortunately, it worked out that uh, he's just about wrapping up, but last night, we were able to get together for a quick drink and some barbecue, and we recorded a little feedback. Well, hey, everyone. It's Dr. Steph, and I am here in Charlotte, North Carolina at Max Speed Shop. Just finished up an awesome dinner with our listener, Corey, and he's in town to do some of his initial uh, training. He's going to be working as a pilot, and I will... Let him tell you more about that. I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say his company or anything like that, but I'll let him fill you in on the details here in just a second. Um, So take it away, Corey, tell us what you've been up to and what you're doing and what you'll be flying and all of that good stuff.
5: All right, this is Corey. Thank you, Dr. Steph. Hey, APG crew, APG community. Um, So like Dr. Steph said, I'm going to be, I'm down here for um, initial training on the ERJ 145. I'm gonna be working for a wholly owned subsidiary of American, one of the three. And uh, the little, the smaller one of the three and the uh, carryover from US Airways. So if you can do the math, you can uh, figure out who that is, pacemaker. So um, I have exactly uh, two days left here. I leave on Thursday. Uh, So that'll be one day left by the time you guys uh, hear this. And, so just completed systems, took the systems written, uh, took the uh, menu, uh, the procedures test, and I have a written on procedures and then when I'm done that I'll go home for a short break and uh, have a uh, comeback for sims either in Charlotte, Dallas or Houston uh, or many other places I don't know yet they just go wherever they tell me so we'll be we'll find out and I'll keep you guys updated but uh, I'll try for hundred next time. Uh, I know 97 is not up to your uh, to your standards, but we'll we'll do our best. <laughs>
2: Hey, so you're a uh, quasi-celebrity now, too, I heard. Um, I think you sent us some feedback about that the other day. I don't think we have a a date for when the um, interview is airing, but you did a little piece with, was it CBS Evening News, about pilot shortages and whatnot, and um, hopefully when we have that information about when it airs, we can pass that along so people can can watch and hear what you had to say about all of that.
5: Yes, so... um yeah, so I had my interview today with uh, CBS Nightly News. Uh, they had me in this uh, simulator, talking about various things how I became a pilot and all that good stuff. Uh, they asked me about the pilot shortage. I didn't really want to say too much about that, you know. I got to keep everybody happy, but uh, so that went well today. And about when it's gonna be airing they don't have an air date but our PM or uh, excuse me not PM our uh, HR or one of the people in public relations (laughs) public relations manager she will um, she will reach out to me if she remembers my email and let me know (laughs) when uh, when that's gonna be airing so when I find that out I'll pass it along to Dr. Steph and uh, and the rest of you so we can all uh, hear me mumble on TV.
2: <laughs> awesome. Well, we're looking forward to hearing that. But um, anyway, it was great hanging out with you again. Awesome dinner tonight. Good beers. Good company. Good good uh, conversation as always. And um, if you're back here in Charlotte for your Sim stuff, I'm sure we'll do it again. All right. So anyway, we'll uh, hand it back over to the show and talk to you all very soon. Bye.
1: Excellent. That was our uh, on location reporter, Dr. Steph.
2: That's right. And just for Nev, um, it's funny he had he when we were over in London. He just said, "Make sure you guys say awesome because we love it when the Americans say awesome." I think I mentioned, I said the word awesome about four times in that. So, I think there I've said go, it a
1: couple times already on the show, and I I thought to myself, "Oh, oops, I can't even, It's an yeah, awesome. Yeah, I don't show.
2: even know. Don't even notice when it happens. It's just <laughs> what, ingrained oh, wow. in my vocabulary.
3: Yeah. Wow. Make America awesome again. Wow. <laughs> That's right. Oh, that thanks, Neville Corey, for
1: in the uh, room chat room. Awesome, in all awesome. caps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but my
0: thanks
2: again to, to Corey for a great meetup last night. Good conversation, as always. And congrats to him on um, getting through that far in his training, and a little bit left to go.
1: Excellent. So he's going to keep us updated. Yep, fingers and crossed. You know what? Uh, even if we miss the, um, you know, the actual air date, I'm sure that we can. Find a copy of the video online, and uh, I'll snag the audio from that, and we'll be able to play it on the show and on, a, on a future episode. All right, let's. Uh, anything else before we move on to the? We'll do a quick coffee fund thing, and then move on to news. What do you think?
4: Nope. Let's do it. All right. It. All right. For me.
1: Let's do it. And if I can find it, here we go.
6: Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks!
1: I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community. Come on, sing along! Tea and the Java and me. A A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. I can hear you all. All right. The Coffee Fund, the Java Jive. That's what we play when we talk about the Coffee Fun. And we've already mentioned it a few times in the intro here today. Uh, one of the perks of becoming a Coffee Fund cadre member is you get access to the APG crew logs. And we recorded several of those in the last couple of weeks, uh, kind of uh, talking about what we're doing behind the scenes and, you know, little extras here and there. And uh, early access to things like the uh, talk that Captain Nick did at the Royal Aeronautical Society. And uh, so, all you have to do is head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com coffee, and there you'll learn about the couple different ways to participate in the coffee fund. And that is the classic method and also the Patreon method. Let's start off with the classic method, which is basically a PayPal donation. And you can make a one-time donation, or you can uh, make it a recurring Uh, donation as well as several people have done and since the last show we've received donations via the classic coffee fund method from richard adams chris randall and moxie connor and also patreon you can become a patron of the show give a at least a dollar per episode and you can have access to the uh, apg crew logs and since the last show, we have a couple of people that uh, have been around in the APG community for quite some time. Masha in the Netherlands, Masha Gertz, uh, Philip M. Matinsky or something like that. you ever heard of that guy? Philip. That sounds familiar to me. Oh, that's Pip. Pip is a patron of the show. Thank you, sir. And Mike Macaluso is also a new Producer of the show, a patron via patreon.com. So if you want to join the great gang of people, please head over to slash coffee. We'll see you there. It loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah.
7: Stand by for news.
1: you and me. I think the reason why Pip joined is because he heard that we were uh, saying bad things about him on the APG crew logs, which may or may not be true, but now...
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, but now I we'll have to
1: pick someone else to say bad things. <laughs> yeah, somebody else that's not a member.
3: Who hasn't joined
1: <laughs> Okay, that's, of course, just a joke, Um, and it was great seeing you, Pip, and uh, wow, the, watch the PTUK 200th um, episode where you'll see Pip in all his glory announcing the uh, chicken Nugget Challenge. Uh, he was in rare form for sure. Okay, and the uh,
2: trophy is amazing.
1: Oh yeah, Thanks, uh, Pip. yeah. We didn't even talk about that. Well, I, I guess don't. we don't want to steal uh, anything me, from.
2: Nah, watch 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 UK episode two hundred. Yeah,
1: but uh, let me just put it this way: Steph is uh, the champion this year for the uh, for the chicken nuggets. At least yeah. so far.
3: And so Pip far. nearly lost a finger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Steph should know better than you. Um, Wait, (laughs) Pip should know. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I'm confused. (laughs) (laughs) All right, news, news, news. Here we go. Uh, First thing in our news folder is a uh, kind of an update. We talked about this on an earlier show where a, uh, unfortunately, uh, flight lieutenant Sean Cunningham died after he was ejected from his aircraft in 2011 while on the ground at RAF Scrampton. And uh, the ejection Uh, seat. Scampton. Oh, I'm sorry. Scampton. Ooh. Oh. oh, Scranton. Yeah, that's uh, the office um, in the U.S. Is, uh, takes place in Scranton, PA. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. That's not the same place, is it? No. no. Okay. RAF Scampton. Thank you. Um, the ejection seat firm, Martin Baker, uh, admitted breaching health and safety laws over the death of the Red Arrows pilot. And uh, the parachute on the seat uh, did not deploy. And the South African-born airman was fatally injured. And uh, so uh, the firm is due to be sentenced on the 12th of February. And again, we've talked about it extensively on an earlier show or shows, but uh, it was just a tragedy that uh, it was kind of an accident. I think they think that the uh, something like a, a seat belt or something had uh, accidentally moved uh, the arming Um uh, hardware on the seat and uh, accidentally the uh, the seat accidentally fired uh, while he was doing the pre-flight on the ground
3: yeah it looked like um, the seat handle uh, the with the objective seat initiation handle had been moved slightly out of its housing which um, when it was far enough out it wasn't really obvious it was out but it did allow the safety pin to be put in position uh, because it was like underneath the handle rather than in the center of the handle where it would have located through a hole in the handle and prevented the handle from moving so um, somebody had managed to dislodge the handle the pin was apparently in position um, he must have moved it a bit further and activated it and then you know it's it's a kind of double whammy isn't it the, uh, the seat fired he would have been fine but uh, due to an um, administrative error, uh, it seems that a um, requirement for them to check the t- the tension of a nut in the scissor shackle that allows the main parachute to uh, deploy uh, hadn't been issued to the Royal Air Force. It had gone to everyone else, but somehow they'd been missed off the distribution, which is just an administrative cock-up. Uh, and they hadn't checked the the tension of this bolt. It was too tight. The the parachute didn't deploy, and the poor guy died. Um, I can't say I entirely agree with um, the coroner's findings when he said that the seat safety mechanism was entirely useless. It obviously wasn't since the safety mechanism, when correctly positioned uh, on a handle that hasn't been partially pulled, worked perfectly. Um, It was... uh, it didn't work in this case, but to say it's entirely useless for all the uh, thousands upon thousands of these seats that are out there and haven't had a problem, I think, is something of an exaggeration. But I suspect what we're getting here is just uh, the BBC's pricey of his uh, words there. Mm-hmm. And
1: as you, so this was a zero-zero seat. So if the tightening of that nut had been, if they had received the information about that, uh, nut tightening thing um there is a a good chance that even if he had accidentally ejected himself on the ground that he would have been able to uh, survive that uh, event
3: that's exactly right and uh of course uh, it's it it is uh something that every pilot needs to look at very ca- carefully when they climb in an ejector seat uh, is not an ordinary seat it's a loaded gun and uh everyone who uh, goes near one has to understand that and uh, we all did, when I was in the service, did our safety checks rigorously and carefully. Um, but having said that, the uh, movement of the jet seat handle, um, such that it was slightly out of its housing, wasn't easy to spot. And the fact that the uh, pin, the safety pin, could be put into position with the uh, jet seat handle slightly out of position uh, was very bad news for everybody because that pin really shouldn't have been able to go in there. They should have perhaps modified it so it couldn't happen. But it means anticipating that someone's going to pull the handle almost to the point of firing the seat, but not quite, and then try and put the pin in. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's real tough. The fact is that Martin Baker are a brilliant company, in my opinion. They've saved so many lives. They have thousands upon thousands of seats out there. And um, they're usually only asked to uh, work once in the whole seat's life. And generally speaking, they are fantastically reliable. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, they let themselves down.
2: So I have a question, actually. Does that mean that there are certain types of or different types of ejection seats out there that are not zero-zero that would not be able to um, yeah,
3: all the earlier ones and ones that are probably okay. fitted to lightweight aircraft okay. uh, that don't have uh, the capability to carry a rocket pack would be not zero, zero. All the, the ones I trained in, all those jet seats I trained in, the Jet Provost and the Hunter and the Nat, they were zero 90 seats. So uh, you could eject at sea level, eject on the ground, but it had to be doing at least 90 knots of forward airspeed because the seat only had the gun it didn't have the rocket pack. Rocket. the gun okay. would fire you uh, clear enough but you needed that forward speed in order to get the main parachute to deploy in time yeah gotcha. same thing uh, the- once you were sl- sorry jeff no go ahead i'm sorry i thought you were finished yeah once you're slower than 90 knots that that wouldn't happen and you'd have hit the ground with a partially deployed uh, parachute which obviously would have could have well have been fatal and the T-37
1: had the same kind of a uh, uh, thing, where it was just, a, you know, it kind of popped a charge that kind of got you out of the airplane, but uh, it required a minimum altitude and a minimum speed for it to be effective, because it did not have a rocket booster in there.
3: Yeah, yeah. And even a zero-zero seat, uh, you still, if you're descending fast enough towards the ground, you still need to eject with a suitable altitude, because uh, uh, if you took a tenth of your rate of descent Uh, that was the minimum height above ground you had to eject. So if you were, you know, pulling through a loop and you decided that uh, you weren't going to make it and you're going to eject, if you had uh, 10,000 feet a minute rate of descent, you needed to eject at 1,000 feet because obviously everything's going downwards, including the seat. Exactly. And the seat needs that extra height to uh, deploy and everything to work. But they're getting better all the time. And uh, and I hope this doesn't... uh, this much uh martin baker's reputation too much i don't think it will um i'm
1: going to skip uh, over the second item there in the news and move to this one uh, but we'll go back to it uh let's try the or do the um update on the pegasus 737 runway excursion in Trabzon or Trabzon, turkey Uh, this is from nick first officer nick from acme holiday he says, hi, Steph, Jeff, Nick, and Dana. The following text was sent to me by a colleague via WhatsApp. He got it from someone else. I found it also on the internet. I don't know where the information really comes from, but maybe there's a little truth to it. Feel free to use it or not. So we're going to use it, Nico. And uh, this actually makes sense. Again, we're not. this is not from a verified news source, but uh, here is what we see here in this text. Uh, the first officer was the pilot flying. Weather was at minimums. They were expecting to see the runway at minimums. At minimums, they did see the runway. First officer disengages the autopilot, but at the same time presses the toga buttons. Captain takes over, lowers the nose, retards both thrust levers to idle. They land at idle thrust, and the aircraft was dispatched with one reverser in op. The captain deploys the thrust reverser of the left engine and releases the right engine thrust lever. Since he hadn't disconnected the auto throttle, the right engine goes to toga thrust aircraft starts to accelerate it skids off the runway, uh, to the left, the right engine separates all passengers, evacuate the aircraft from the rear door, no smoke in the cabin and no injuries. And, uh, first officer Nico says, thanks for all the work you do for the community by from Germany. And, uh, so, I mean that, that actually, Sounds very, very plausible to me.
3: Yeah, I remember uh, Miami Rick. uh, Remember that chat we used to have on years ago? Uh, He had described uh, pilots who rejected, uh, and every time they took the hands off the throttles, the throttles would open up again because they hadn't disconnected the auto thrust properly. And that sounds exactly like what happened with this guy. Uh, The auto thrust was trying to go back to the previous. Speed. So opening the throttles every time the guys let go of them, uh, and I have to say, you know, I've, I've talked about um, my um, confusion over the way Boeing's have decided, dis- <laughs> sorry, designed their auto thrust system uh, after that triple seven accident with the uh, takeoff go around buttons. And uh, uh, again, this is another one. Uh, I really do think that um, perhaps. Uh, that needs to be looked at that that way of operating uh, you know it doesn't seem very logical to me in, in at times,
1: and I have no experience with the uh, Boeing auto throttle systems because the seven twenty seven that I flew, the only Boeing that I've flown uh, did not have auto throttles, so you know the pilot was the uh, auto throttle system
3: sometimes the uh, the best way
1: yeah
2: this the simplest method right
1: right, yeah. yep all right, and then finally. We have this. <laughs> Liz uh, found this for us. Um, let's see. American Airlines announced today that they will be having hourly shuttles between Chicago and New York City starting in April. They also promise free beer and wine. Yay, party!
4: <laughs>
2: sounds like I'm going to be taking some trips between <laughs> New York and Chicago.
4: <laughs> they don't mention it's keystone light, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, it's free. Whatever. It tastes great. Keystone <laughs> so light and
1: boxed wine.
3: They, how, long, how long would that flight be, Jeff?
1: Oh, uh, what would that be? About a I don't know. two and a half two hour, hours? Three, two and a half yeah. hours,
2: probably.
3: All right. Well, they're only going to get up and down the aisle twice then. So uh, you get two beers. Yeah, that's true. Unless you say, so give me three. Them. I'll just start with three right now. Just put them right there. <laughs> give me a
1: bucket.
2: <laughs> they offer New Belgium Voodoo Ranger IPA. Ooh. So. I don't don't know if they will on this flight, but they do have it normally.
1: They plan on flying between the two cities 15 times per day. The route will fly back and forth from LaGuardia and Chicago's O'Hare, both American airline hubs. American Airlines didn't think offering the most flights on the route was enough to really entice business travelers. American Airlines will be giving out free beer and wine, even in economy. Um, So. Anyway, we'll put a link to this in the show notes. So, if you want to so all
4: go. the business travelers can show up to the meetings strong, right? Yes, I think they probably do already, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> probably.
2: It's a different type of line of work than we're all in.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I all can't right. wait to see the first uh, doctor's conference that goes on that room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although, as long as
2: they're not actually going to the directly to the operating room.
3: Doctors' conferences. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Uh. The clinic,
3: We're the office, we know all about those doctors, yeah, like in, in oh. uh, Park City, Utah. <laughs> yeah, that's so, it yeah, sure. Yeah. Looking forward to that one. <laughs> Doing
1: it again this year, huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Love it. That's all I have in the news folder. Kind of a quiet news week, and uh, has been quiet for a while, which is good. Which means that uh, there haven't been a lot of crashes and incidents and stuff. So that gives us more time to concentrate on the best part of the show, which, of course, is. Your feedback.
4: Captain, incoming message.
1: Incoming message. Thank you. Uh, let's start off with I've uh, hit the wrong folder here. Hang on. It is from John. John sent me some email. He says, hello there. I noticed on airlinepilotguide.com slash 117, the uh, episode 117, that you reference an article about flying cars. I would like to get your feedback regarding an article that I just published, which is all about the progress people have made and what is currently available on the market regarding flying cars. Oh, I should have played my little flying car sound effect, which I cannot find. Oh, well, uh, I'll put it in and post. <laughs> Maybe
3: um, you, you won't. I, know. I won't. No. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but I talked about it. Well, hang yeah. on. Yeah. Hang on. Let me see if just I can
2: imagine find it. your own flying car. <laughs> no. Uh,
1: let's see. I think now that I'm on the right soundboard, nope, it's not in this one either. <laughs>
3: oh, where are the Jetsons oh, No.
1: Jetsons, Jetsons, where are you? Huh. Oh, well.
3: Well, That's it's in the future. That's why you can't find it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good.
4: Anyway,
1: um, he gave us a link to the uh, article. And he said, it would be great to know your personal opinion on the article. And if you find it useful, please consider linking to it from the page of yours. Also, if you prefer, you may republish the article. So, John, we're going to put this link in our show notes where hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people will see it. (laughs) Not really. Uh, He published this on the 26th of December, which is a a very important date um, of last year. Since the very
4: first. Excuse excuse me. I was going to say that day will live in infamy. Uh, will it? Yes. Uh, it's your my in birthday. In for me.
0: In for me. Yeah. They've all yeah, got your birthday.
1: For me. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. That's my birthday.
0: <laughs> hey.
1: hey. 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 Where is the uh, – never mind. Um,
4: Happy birthday
1: to you. No, 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 no. Uh, so anyway, let me just read a little bit of the first uh, part of the article here, and then you can read the rest of it yourself. Since the very first science fiction hit the shelves, the world has fantasized about flying objects. For nearly a century, books, radio dramas, movies and television shows have depicted flying cars. As the most famous fl- or, and the most f- famous flying car to date, probably Doc Brown's flying DeLorean, the time machine from the movie franchise Back to the Future. The movie's second installment, originally set in the year 2015, introduced the concept of flying cars for every family. Of course, this is just fiction. The real question is, how close are we? as a society to creating and introducing flying cars. And then he goes in and talks about the development of cars and what different companies um, are doing as far as designs and how far they've gotten so far. And then um, how much they all cost, which uh, let me just tell you, it isn't cheap. Uh, I think for flying cars to be something that we're going to see uh, all over the place, these things are going to have to be a lot less expensive. And uh, of course he talks about some other drawbacks like uh legislation regulation and all kinds of stuff so a uh, good article that's my personal opinion i, th- I thought it was re- well written john and um, i'm sure that uh, our community will read it as well and uh, be able to uh, send you some feedback regarding it as well
4: what i particularly uh, like about that article is that there's a picture of a lady in a full armored up suit in in this flying car as if it's she's like ready. a
2: convertible flying car it's yeah.
4: convertible, and she's ready to crash or something because she's in a um, almost like a uh, well, it looks like a full body suit of armor. Yeah, is that a yeah. like a human or a humanoid or what is that?
3: I don't know. She's very I don't pretty know. if it's a humanoid. Yeah, she's pretty. She's got a nice figure at least. <laughs> I was just going to make the point that uh, Dot Brown's flying DeLorean really ought to be better known for the fact that it went back in time, not just because it <laughs> flew. <laughs> Flying is actually fairly insignificant. Well, let's not Go get r- picky <laughs> about it. <laughs> <laughs> Go back hard. in time. That's a little harder. I do like uh, the
1: reference to uh, a quote from uh, Elon Musk. Uh, let's see. Inventor and engineer Elon Musk makes a very valid point that, quote, there is a challenge with flying cars in that they'll be quite noisy. The wind force generated will be very high. Let's just say that it's something. if something's flying over your head, if there are a whole bunch of flying cars all over the place, that is not an anxiety reducing situation. You don't think to yourself, well, I feel better about today. You're thinking, did they service their hubcap or is it going to come off and guillotine <laughs> me as they're flying
3: past? Yeah. And considering the amount of rubbish that people toss out in their cars, the last thing I want to do is have my garden full of uh, Starbucks cups and uh, empty uh, curry wrappers. Yeah.
2: Shoot, people don't even want to drive their cars now. They want, you know, self-driving cars. Why do they want cars that they can also
3: fly?
1: Well, I think they want self-flying cars. Okay. Self-flying cars, yeah. yeah, yeah. I
3: guess. Mind you, I noticed that, an, and there was another Tesla uh, crash into the back of a fire truck. This oh, trip. really? Didn't see. that. Oh, I didn't see that one. Another yeah. autopilot I didn't crash. See that one. No, no
1: boy. Yeah. yeah, I read a good article uh, very recently about the fact that. Uh, the the big the big hurdle that we're going through right now with the uh, self-driving cars is this reliance on automation. Hey, where have we heard that before? where people are getting they're not fully automated yet and fully autonomous. So but people are kind of treating some some people are treating these vehicles as if they are. And I think there was a recent um, incident where somebody was driving a Tesla and they were like two times or three times over the legal limit for uh, drinking and they were passed out. And the car was just driving on its own down the freeway,
2: <laughs> and it'll just drive forever until yeah. you, I guess, love it. Come to you and stop it.
4: Well, we actually talked about automation, how it fails on this very show. Yeah, it the, does. Tur- the Turkish the Turkish crash. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't select the right mode, and the automation. Yeah, it can uh, run the yeah. airplane off the runway. Well, yeah. how ironic.
1: Yeah, very very good point. All right. Well, thanks, John. And, um, again, uh, people can find a link to your article in the show notes. Um, Mary says, I've been listening to APG since Catholic Pilot Guy Episode 1. And it was just Uh actually Catholic Pilot uh, Episode 1. So definitely have the APG syndrome. Yes, you do, Mary. I'm sorry. I have never, however, sent in feedback that I can remember or that she'll admit to. I meant to send this closer to the time, November 19th, 2017, but was out of uh, out on an interesting local incident for the American Red Cross. It was a small plane crash into a house in San Jose from the local GA airport, Reed Hillview Airport. The three people on the plane were injured, but no one in the house was hurt. The people in the house were displaced, however, for a while. I was there just as the NTSB and the FAA were arriving on scene. And then she uh, included a picture of this Cessna 172 that crashed in the front yard of a, a house uh, in the area, and uh, she, she uh, sent a link of the uh, article about the small plane crashing into the uh, San Jose home. So we'll put that
3: in the show. you mean there's there's one less 172 out there now? I guess so. Yeah. Am I, I, I going to have change change <laughs> the stats in my plane tail? <laughs> <laughs> well, unless no, I can no, find I another way, this
4: one again.
1: Yeah, you think so?
3: Oh, okay. i
4: think they can fly that
1: one again it no yeah, looks can. like in pretty good shape except yeah. for maybe the wing
4: yeah eh. no <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe i don't uh, know. should be right I don't, I don't know that it's the tail. The, the tail is the tail is sagging the yeah the, cargo There's definitely door, some... the the cargo door is cracked open because it's probably bent open yeah yeah I mean, yeah they're not using yeah. that again oh okay well what a loss
2: i don't think it'll affect your statistics too significantly though nick Hopefully oh, good.
1: I'm glad about that. Yeah. A minor blip. Um, speaking of a minor blip, well, it wasn't really a minor blip that uh, storm uh, Grayson that uh, hit the uh, East coast. Well, Florida, and then went up the, uh, the Southeastern coast and eventually up toward New York as well. Winter storm Grayson, uh, the first week of this year. Um, let's see. This was sent us sent to us by Captain Robson. He says, I'm, uh, my name is Robins, Robson, and I fly an executive Learjet 40 in Brazil. I'm, for a long time, your listener, but it's the first time I send a feedback. I think that I've been contaminated by the APG syndrome. You know what? That's the second time that we've heard somebody say it's something. Time, about, I think it's time. time for, the- yeah. Should we play this?
3: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Doctor, doctor, give me the
1: news. I got a bad case of- APG, APG syndrome. syndrome. It's APG syndrome. Ah! There we go. So he's been contaminated by it uh, because I already heard all the podcast episodes. Wow! I received this audio in an aviation WhatsApp group and found interesting, so I decided to share it with you guys. It uh, it pretends to be an ATIS. Oh, I thought it was a real one. Darn it! An uh, AT Automated Automated Terminal Information Service from John F Kennedy International Airport. And this was put out by ATC Memes, and I think we need to listen to it because it's quite funny.
6: JFK International Airport. Automated weather observation. 1612 Zulu. Wind 150 at 55 gusting to 70. Visibility variable over 120 seconds between five miles and 0.6 millimeters. Sky conditions (laughs) whiteout condition at five feet. Temperature negative three, dew point negative three, Altimeter 2771. Remarks. Due to intense winter storm Grayson, all traffic to and from the airport is currently suspended, with the exception of Allegiant, who probably won't hear this because their radios are inoperative, and Alaska Airlines because, well, they're from fucking Alaska. Be advised. (laughs) Due to the increasing wind speeds, blowing snow, and risk of severe shrinkage, the 1700 Zulu annual Jamaica Bay Polar plunge at the end of runway 22R right is suspended until further notice. All aircraft equipped with more than three engines are advised to park with their tails facing the terminal due to the likely event that the terminal will lose heating ability and will be requesting a Alternative means. Caution. Due to the nature of this alternative heating strategy, blowing snow, ice, glass, concrete, vehicles, and airport personnel are possible. all flight crews looking for hot food are advised that buffalo wild wings in terminal 4 still has the hottest food around they also have the hottest waitresses especially alexis well i used to know before i got that restraining order anyway (laughs) moving right along here currently there are three water main breaks that have been reported at various locations on the field causing severe icing most notable the one at the west side of the field that has turned taxiway quebec into what is essentially an olympic ice skating rink Wait, what the fuck was that? Well, looks like we got Old Faithful going off at the intersection of Yankee and Juliet. So make that for water main brakes. Correction, that is Jet A fuel. Roll the trucks. LOL, just kidding, all of the trucks are currently buried under an ever-increasing 70-foot-plus snow pile. All aircraft at the GA terminal, please be advised that the ramp is currently being used as a staging area for Jim Cantore and the Weather Channel. Holy the Thunder Snow. Sorry. Complimentary hot vodka is being served at the end of Terminal 3. All flight crews are encouraged to check Tinder for possible connections between flight attendants and other crew members. As there is a good chance you will be stuck here for a few days and there is no better way to warm up to the beautiful city of Queens during a historic snow event than with a sketchy date who probably has some tattoo of some random date or guy's name on it. By the way, swipe right on any girl with a nose ring, just trust me. Okay sorry my ADHD is getting the best of me on this weather report, but it's getting me so excited to tell you about it. Oh did I just realized I think I confused the Viagra and the Adderall XR again. My wife is going to kill me. For flight crews looking for the shortest route to the nearest available hotel room. It is most likely the Van Wick to Kew Gardens, which should take you approximately 19 days 4 hours and 21 minutes to arrive at your destination. Recalculating. Due to the ice and snow currently stuck to the north side of the control tower, Visibility to runway 13 left is completely obstructed and not possible. The current runway in use is runway 13 left. Be advised on initial contact you have information zero kilo, as in Kelvin. Stay warm out there, kids. From all of us at ATC memes.
3: <laughs> That's very, <laughs> very good. Now, I had to do some editing. Yeah, that required a bit of editing.
1: Yeah. But I thought it was very cute. Very cute.
3: That was funny.
1: <laughs> Alexis, yeah. the hottest, one of the hot uh, waitresses at Buffalo Wild hey, Buffalo
4: Wings. Wild <laughs> <laughs> the
1: restraining order. <laughs> there
4: you go. That was yeah. Genius.
1: Yeah. Captain Robson, thank you for uh, pointing us in that direction. That was very, very funny. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's continue on. Matt uh, has a great question for us. He says, hi, folks. When Acme merged with Acme Up Left and maybe Acme Red in the future, buying the remaining 51%, which I don't think can happen unless they change the laws, how does it work seniority-wise? If you're a pilot number one in Acme Red with, say, 10,000 hours and you merge with Acme, do you merge in at pilot one or two level, or is it depending on the 10,000 hours? So you may go from pilot number one to pilot number 5,000 in hours levels, or is it a combination of both? Would Nick be senior to Jeff just based on his age? Thanks in advance, Matt.
2: Nick hmm. will always be senior to Jeff yes. based on his age. <laughs> just,
1: just my age. He's always my senior. I always defer to Captain Nick.
3: Not through ability or anything else. Just, has got more gray hair. Nah. And my joints are worse. Yeah. <laughs>
1: He only has a couple of years on me so um it really depends i hate to answer this this kind of question like that but with an airline based on seniority and and uh, the mergers it it, there are some good seniority list integration schemes that have happened in the past and there have been some horrible ones uh like uh, for instance last night we were in norfolk virginia kind of partying with uh uh, an American Airlines crew. and uh, But most of these uh, American Airlines employees were previously with TWA. And uh, the captain uh, at the table was one of the luckier ones because he was a captain at TWA. And so he was somewhat uh, integrated into their, their uh, seniority list at American when the merger occurred. Uh, however, I think all the first officers were basically stapled to the bottom of the list. So it didn't matter how many years they had with twa or how many hours they had they basically just got stuck at the bottom of the stack um, uh, a merger such as uh, acme and acme north or acme south and acme north was actually a pretty good one the unions got together and came up with a pretty reasonable plan of how the seniority would be integrated and you couldn't go just specifically on longevity nor could you go specifically on your position at your uh, your previous airline uh, but it was a complicated formula and i think they did a pretty good job of getting everybody within about a half to one percent of where they were with a, with the uh, pre-merger airline um, and as far as i know and I'm, I'm not sure if any airlines use how many hours you have as a as a uh, a factor for where you would end up in a seniority it's mostly about when you were when you were hired and i guess sometimes about what equipment that you're on at the time of the merger i don't know that's about all i have to say about that um i'm sure there's a lot more to say so um go ahead dana jump in
4: yeah i was going to say the uh the green book and uh red book guys from the north side northwest uh when they re- merged with the republic they had i think a 10 or 20 year fence no it's 10 year fence so uh, their merger was was not so good in um, it wasn't based on anything other than where you, where you sat, as you just mentioned, in seniority in the aircraft that you were flying. So let's say there was a, uh, a captain... Uh, a guy hired at Northwest and has five, been there five years, and the guy that was over at Republic, been there 20 years, ca- captain on DC-9, and the, the Northwest guy was the first officer flying DC-10. Well, he could upgrade to be a captain on the DC-10 where the Republic guy was stuck in the, right, the captain's seat on the DC-9 or somewhere, so they had a long-time fence. I agree with you that the uh, the ACME North and South merger is the best in history, uh, and it's going to be a model for uh, hopefully for future. Uh, and I'm not sure if pre-American with the U.S. here, whether the America West and. Uh, um, and uh, U.S. Air guys have actually worked out that seniority list, and so I'd have to look that up. But that was a contentious issue for a very long time. And as of the American merger, it, it was had not been uh, – U.S. Air, American merger had not been worked out. But American has uh, – well, I shouldn't say American. Well, I guess I can say American uh, – has had a history of stapling. They did the same thing to the Reno Air guys. Um, and they have not been fair, and for the most part, and they definitely weren't fair to the TWA guys. So, but anyways, uh, yeah, mergers are not pretty. Not in 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 almost. Uh, I agree with you. They're almost one hundred percent based on uh, data hire, as everything is predicated in our business all data
3: hire. In uh, in my experience. Uh, I- Apart from what you guys have said, which is all absolutely correct, and there have been a few mergers, um, it's quite common that the senior company buying out the junior company just uh, doesn't give them anything. It just uh, puts them at the bottom. Um, but more and more common is to integrate an airline as a separate entity. So uh, they join on, or on a completely separate contract. Um And uh, that way they they don't integrate them at all. Uh, They almost have their own little company to work in within the big company. Sometimes they put them all off to a basing somewhere and say, right, well, you run your little empire out of there. And we're just going to be an overall umbrella airline. But it depends entirely on the type of uh, of takeover or merger. And uh, each one will be different to another. There's no
1: one size fits all in this world of airline mergers and seniority list mergers and all that. And, and usually it's a mess. So good question though. I wish I could be more definitive about it, Matt, but, uh, that's, that's where we are with that sort of stuff. Um, Phil sent in a question for Dana. He says, hi, APG crew. My name is Phil and I'm a CRJ 200, 700, 900 first officer for a massive U S regional airline. I have a question for Dana. While the CRJ series, especially the 700 and 900, have more modern avionics than a Mad Dog, as you must remember, they do not have auto throttles or GPS VNAV capability. Climb and descent planning and power management is done manually with the aid of FMS generated VSR, which stands for vertical speed required values and range to altitude indications on the MFD, the moving map known as the Magenta Banana. <laughs> Never heard it referred to like that. Um, I know the Mad Dogs have auto throttles, and I believe they have VNAV capability for SIDS and STARS. Correct me if that's wrong. No, you're right. My question is Which aircraft have you found to put a higher workload on pilots, the more modern CRJ or the arguably more capable Mad Dog? And he goes, I look forward to hearing your input, Dana. I'm hoping to join the ranks at Acme in the next few years. So please feel free to take on podcasting full-time and retire, Captain Jeff. Ooh, <laughs> ouch. Ouch. Yeah. I see a- where he was really
4: going this. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. I could I could take the same stance, Captain Jeff. Get out of my way. Get out of my seat.
3: <laughs> you, you got problems, Jeff. The the number of uh emails I'm getting nowadays going, You're not you're not looking well, Nick. You need to go. You really should just retire. Yeah, you really should. Uh
1: thanks APG Crew for putting on such a good, mostly accurate show. <laughs> That's from Phil. Thanks. Yeah, it is mostly accurate. Uh fifty one percent. Yes, mostly. at least Dana take it away
4: yes phil that's uh that's really a very good question um thank you for writing in and bringing that uh, question to me um yeah the 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 fact that the the uh uh that the crj did not have uh, auto throttles it had a, a trend vector i uh, give you a 10 second an advanced trend vector kind of like uh, um what we have on our airplane jeff it gives us you know where our airspeed is based on uh, um, uh, what the airplane's calculating, which would our configuration on the left hand side of our primary flight display, that fast slow indicator. Um, it's very similar in in function. Um, I would say that the auto throttles and the complacency on the eighty eight is that the VNAV works, and that is not true. You can't trust it. Um, you have to stay on top of it all the time. A lot of times the information that it's giving you, and we also have a banana bar on our airplane, uh, you have to have to stay on top of the aircraft because the FMS, uh, even though we do have the, the capability of doing VNAV, uh, will not uh, fly it as advertised all the time. Well, one particular that when we started flying was the uh, um, the COI-3 arrival into LaGuardia, that airplane just wouldn't fly it very well, um, especially once you come down to the quarry I guess it's 10,000 feet, if I remember correctly. been a while since they've gone to LaGuardia, but there's a couple last step downs there, you know, 11,000, 10,000. Um, the airplane just didn't do it very well because the initial fix was net or above altitude. We had to change that to an actual hard altitude. So there, there was a lot of thinking that goes on. Um, the information, the FMS generated information on the RJ, was leaps and bounds ahead of the technology that we have on the uh, on the um, Mad Dog. So even though uh, the Mad Dog has the capability to fly it using the auto throttles, um. That really is the only advantage, and I find that the auto throttles can make you a real lazy pilot, and you become complacent, and uh, then you're, you're you're lulled into this uh, trusting of it, and you can't not on the on the Mad Dog. Now the, the Airbus I understand, works a whole lot better. Um, so to answer your question, I guess that's a roundabout way. I would have to say that, other than having to manage your power on the RJ. Um, which you kind of really have to do on the 88, anyways. Uh, the RJ's FMS was far superior. It just didn't fly the the, uh, the uh, arrival the VNAV arrival procedure for you. Uh, so you have to stay engaged, but the calculations that it gave you are more accurate. Yes, trust but verify. <laughs> always, always trust but verify. So I, I would say the workload. Um, you know, it, it really depends on the arrival, to be honest with you. Just like on either aircraft. I mean, if if you come into Atlanta with these new arrivals, um, you know, the the, the not these newest ones that they just came out with, but the last version of all these V Nav arrivals, uh <laughs> the airplane just couldn't do it. That's why they actually went away. Um a, a good portion of the reason why the last round of uh previous the ones we have now uh went away because this aircraft just it's still having problems. Going to Minneapolis with this uh, with the, with the eighty-eight or ninety, still having issues. It just cannot uh, very uh, fly the uh, arrivals very well, at least in my experience. Maybe it's pilot error. Maybe it's me. I mm-hmm. tend to doubt. You you never know. But it, it there, there's some some ways you can trick the system to doing things properly. But still, I, I really think that the uh, the RJ. Uh, even though it didn't have auto throttles, is, is, is really a good platform. Yeah,
1: Phil, uh, and Dana knows this because he's flown with me a few times, I basically fly the Mad Dog like the CRJ, the way you're flying the CRJ, Phil, um, in, uh, in vertical speed and uh, usually have the throttles off. So I'm not using the auto throttle system. So I, I know that uh, I have to pay attention to power control and everything else. And, and it's just I find it a lot easier to just use my pilot brain to – Calculate all the descent gradients and everything else, and the the restrictions and the speeds and everything else, and it and I can do it much more smoothly than the VNAV system can, at least on the Mad Dog.
4: Yeah, and and you know that's very true, Jeff. The uh, Acme got away from uh, teaching guys for a long time. How to use IES and vertical speed, mm-hmm. and tell them, and just programming the pilots? Just use VNAV, VNAV, VNAV. Well. You know, it's you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it's not smooth. You, you sat off at 35,000 feet and sat off in the descent. The airplane, you know, dives down at 2,500 feet per minute, you know, to 3,000 feet or per minute yeah. or more. And then it says clamp, which is computer lockout manual power. So it's telling you, okay, now you get to adjust the power um, as the way you want it. But I'm going to dive you down first, whereas, you know, what you, you're talking about, if you start the vertical speed down, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, 700 feet per minute, get going down nice and smoothly. Mm-hmm. So everybody in the airplane doesn't feel like they're floating. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you do it nice and smoothly You're using the three to one. I mean, it's a very, very basic thing that, as you said, pilot brain. Um, so we do have the capability to fly it like the 700, 900 or the 200. They're all pretty much the same. And uh, the... Uh, the FMS is not smooth, you know. Using or excuse me, the autopilot using the FMS calculated information because of the algorithms are just not very good. So, um, yeah. So. Yeah, and the MD ninety uh, VNAV system is just the
1: worst. Uh, it's mm-hmm. you feel like you're on a uh, like a roller coaster sometimes if you let the system just do it on its own and until you kind of intervene and go, okay, that's enough. You're fired. I'm, I'm taking over. But good question though. And a great answer, Dana.
4: Yeah, I well done. I hope everybody understands me, my Boston accent with a scratchy voice. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are saying that it
1: sounds sexy. Oh. Yeah. Um, I just made that up. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, Hopefully it's
4: not sexy to you.
1: Yeah, well, actually, that's the way I was feeling. <laughs> feeling all warm and fuzzy. Uh, Dave writes in, he says, I was listening to your recent podcast when you were talking about the interaction with the passenger where you went back to the cabin and felt upset and asked your first officer to watch you closely. I did get my private pilot's license, so I understand completely where you're coming from, but my career took me elsewhere. I work in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm a captain on a cruise boat in Milwaukee. I have a 100 ton Coast Guard master's license and I operate vessels on the Great Lakes daily during the summer. A lot of the things that you talked about as far as resource management, I tried to incorporate along with the training I received to get my private pilot license, and I find that to be extremely helpful. It's funny you mention about asking your first officer to keep a close eye on you. My son Maxwell is six years old, and when my wife became pregnant, she told me on a day that I had to work. So about two hours before I went to work, she told me she was pregnant. We've been trying for quite a while. And that was quite a shock to me. So I went to work and I specifically asked my first officer, who was a close friend of mine and still is. In fact, he's my brother-in-law now, to keep a very close eye on me. We hadn't told any of our family members and I specifically said, look, I really trust you, but don't tell anybody. This is on my mind and it's going in 500 different directions right now. You need to keep a close eye on me. So if I do anything stupid or seem to be distracted, you need to smack me upside the head. Luckily, he kept a very close eye on me, and we had no problems, but I know exactly what you mean about being totally distracted and have 1,000 different emotions flowing through your head. If you ever come through Milwaukee in the summertime, you can find me on Twitter, and I will get you on board for free if you have a layover or an evening, and you can just ride along, have a beverage or two, we have some good beers, and enjoy the views. Let me know. Ooh, that sounds like a great plan, wow. Dave. We need to put him on our contact list for <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That sounds great. Damn, I don't go to Chicago anymore. Yeah,
1: well, honest. you know, come fly in somewhere and then we'll uh, non rep together.
4: Where
2: do you together. go anymore? Lagos?
4: Well, Jeff, Newark. York. Uh, I, I have a question. You guys just confused me. Mm-hmm. You both said Chicago, but I see Milwaukee. Oh, that's right.
1: Well, we're confused. That's why. Milwaukee. <laughs> Why was I? Think I, I, just I thought go? you were getting close enough. You just
2: drive up to Milwaukee. Yeah,
1: that's what I. I but don't you know. do go to
2: Milwaukee. So. Yeah, we
1: do go to Milwaukee.
2: Okay. For we some reason, I was thinking you didn't go there, but you do. Oh so. no! Yeah, that we makes... do.
1: Okay. We do. I'm sorry. Someone leading
3: me up the garden path. I had. A... So we're,
2: we're all confused.
3: I just wanted to state the obvious there. Yeah. Well, Poor you Dave. did very good.
2: Well, I was going. I was going to ask, but then I was like, "Well, maybe that's just as close as they get to Milwaukee," and then I was like, "That's not right."
4: <laughs> no, I love Milwaukee. Milwaukee is an awesome overnight. It is. In the summertime. Yeah. Not this
1: time of year, <laughs> having, so great.
4: not so much. But see, kudos, I told you, you <laughs> got to watch me closely.
3: <laughs> kudos to Dave for realizing that he might have a problem after the great news. I mean, so I'm assuming it was absolutely fantastic news mm-hmm. and that he might be distracted. So uh, I, I wish everyone else who did his kind of a job or an airline job was as responsible. Mm-hmm. Anyway, great feedback.
1: Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, hit me. Slap me upside the head. <laughs> love it captain ryan and by the way thank you crew for slapping me upside the head especially you dana for uh, saying chicago instead of milwaukee i don't know what i'm thinking uh, moving on to captain me ryan. huh? me neither <laughs> captain ryan says good evening apg my name is ryan kohlberg currently a captain at acme jr compass based in lax on the e-175 been listening to your podcast since early 2015 while I was in training at Acme Junior. I've greatly enjoyed your podcast and have benefited from listening to Captain Jeff, Rick, Nick, First Officer, soon-to-be Captain Dana, and Dr. Steph, especially a few years ago when I started my airline career. I live in the Midwest, currently northern Wisconsin, originally from Madison, Wisconsin. Commute out west, but hope to be able to be part of a meetup sometime soon. Maybe Osh 18. It would be Air Venture 2018, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Are we are gonna. We may not be able to make it up this year because of uh, the uh, other event that we may be going to. But I'm not sure if they conflict or not. But anywho, um, good chance that there are going to be a lot of APG community uh, there at Oshkosh this year for sure. I know that for a fact. Anyway, glad to be able to contribute to the show via Patreon. It's money well spent. Well, thank you, Captain Ryan. I look forward to all the episodes to come. Thanks again for the amazing podcast, Blue Skies and Tailwinds, Captain Ryan. Woohoo! Thank you for uh, being part of the ca- Coffee Fun Cadre. Uh, Absolutely, and look forward yeah, to meeting you sometime.
3: Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate mm-hmm. your contribution. Thank you so much.
4: Absolutely.
1: You know, we always talk about drones, and usually, uh, they're it's not a, a positive thing. I'm trying to find my drone. There we go. Ah. Well, we actually have a good drone story. Uh, this from Liz, uh, linked to a BBC.com news article, and uh, this actually is uh, took place in Australia. Two teenage boys were rescued by a brand new life saving drone in Australia while lifeguards were still were still training to use the device. The swimmers, aged fifteen through seventeen, had gone into difficulties off the coast of Lennox Head, New South Wales. A member of the public spotted them struggling in heavy surf about seven hundred meters, twenty three hundred feet offshore. Lifesavers instantly sent the drone to drop an inflatable rescue pod. The pair made their way safely to shore. John Somebody, John B. The state's deputy premier praised the rescue as historic. Never before has a drone fitted with a flotation device been used to rescue swimmers like this. Lifeguard supervisor Jai Sheridan or Jai? J-A-I. How would you pronounce J? it? J, maybe. Jai.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Uh, was piloting the, devi- the device when the alarm was raised. He described the experience as unreal. The Little Ripper UAV. That's what they call the thing. Little Ripper Proved itself today. It's amazingly efficient. It's an amazingly efficient piece of life-saving equipment, and a delight to fly. That's what he told the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. And in this article, which you'll find in the show notes, there's a link to uh, some video where it actually shows the moment where the flotation device was released, and you can see the uh, the troubled swimmers uh, in the water below, and it. Drops down, and I'm, I'm thinking that's a really good drop there. They, I, I, you know, would think yeah, that
3: you hit the bloke on the head. Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> it was very accurate.
3: Was right uh,
1: between. Yeah, the thing kind of expanded, and uh, they grabbed onto it, and they got to shore safely.
2: Yeah, okay, I mean, it's really good piece of technology, and a um, uh, simple uh, use of it too. But it also helps not endanger the lifeguards um, at the same time. So. It's good to, see, good to see a positive use of drones and good to see that it's not only helping those swimmers, but also keeping the lifeguards safe at the same time, too. So,
4: Well, I wish Steve Hasselhoff and Pamela Innocent went after them. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather yeah, see it would make for a less,
2: less exciting um, TV drama series.
4: <laughs>
3: yeah, the trouble with those two is they always run in slow motion. So it <laughs> takes a they're not,
8: they're to not rescue someone. You you're
3: you're, you're going to drown <laughs> before they get to you. Well, you know, Hasselhoff running slow
4: motion. I don't care about Pamela Pam Anderson. Come on now. Yeah. I don't yeah. need to say anything more. Screw those swimmers. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, of
3: course. I, I guess we Absolutely. need to. Absolutely. I'm, I'm trying to work out what that uh, inflatable device is because in that <laughs> still that's there, it looks like a mad dog with a big, long yellow thing sticking out the front. Have you seen my where- <laughs> yeah. There's an aeroplane shape at one end, which one kid's got hold of, and then the other blokes hanging onto the long extension. And, but it uh, it looks clever piece of kit. I'm very impressed. Yeah, I thought it was going to like
1: inflate into like a lifeboat or something like that, but it's just it, uh, it reminds it's me
2: just like big like pool noodle that you can just like yeah. paddle back to the floor.
1: Or like one of those things you see at car dealerships, you know, that has a fan blowing and the thing oh, yeah. going like that.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the
3: you land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Be
1: hard to grab hold of though wouldn't it? One of those. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Come here. Come here. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have uh, redesigned the flotation device uh, to grab on to a little bit more effectively. We lost the swimmers. Absolutely. Thank you for yeah. your help in testing the device. <laughs> I mean, that's Pretty a long bad. way out there, uh, 700 meters, and uh, those are big waves, too. I, uh, again, you know, watching the video, um, th- they were probably happy to have that flotation device.
2: Yeah. yeah I guess there's sure. nothing else, even if they couldn't get themselves back to shore, <laughs> at least they have that, so that they're not in more distress by having to
1: continue swimming.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier for uh, the people on the jet skis or whatever. They're going to come out and find them exactly. to see them as well. Because, uh, you know, uh, a swimmer with just a head sticking up is not as clearly seen as a big day-glow thing. Yeah. It's
2: bright yellow, yeah.
3: Mm. Well, I, I, They it, say they if use it was it, me. To, oh, yeah. Oh, you'd be yeah, no problem. Sure. <laughs> but it turned bright red pretty quick. Um, is, they also say they're anti-shark. So I'm just wondering uh, what they do when they see a shark. Are they... Drop a spear on it or something. I don't know. Hmm.
2: Or those were slightly different drone devices that they were using to to spot the sharks.
3: Or was Uh, it uh, Yeah, they had.
2: So they invested in drones to help spot sharks and then also rescue swimmers or surfers in trouble.
4: They drop fish urine. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Fish (laughs) urine.
2: So unclear. Well, on the sharks move on i'm not sure what
1: i think that if he says it one more time that will de- definitely be the title of today's show fish <laughs> urine
3: <laughs> oh man anyway you, you know, it, there, you there, I, I i passed my air transport pilot's license and i remember all the air flows that come into the united kingdom loads like polar um polar maritime returning polar maritime Continental. I don't remember there being a fish here. <laughs> you were absent that day. <laughs> I must've been. All right.
4: Oh, you the- know, I come up with the craziest stuff sometimes <laughs> <laughs> makes you laugh at least. Yeah, That's
3: well, yes, why well, we love you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so uh,
1: we, re- you know, occasionally we'll, we'll be reading a news article or whatever, and it, it contains a, a French word. And we've talked about, you know, several times in the show that the French, Uh, had a big part in uh, the development of uh, manned flight. And, uh, uh, you know, the the different uh, pieces, uh, parts of an airplane have French names and such. And uh, we have a listener up in Montreal who uh, thought that she'd send some feedback and give us a lesson in French.
9: From a frigid little island called Montreal, a warm hello to Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, to Steph. Miami Hick, Miami Rick, Main Man Micah, Ed Alia, that's Latin for everybody else. My name is Josine, and I am currently in school to be an airplane mechanic. My feedback today is a little bit off the beaten path, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. So the theme today is dual meanings. I was initially inspired to send this in response to some comments that Nick made regarding the terms mayday and pan-pan, but then I got to thinking about aviation terminology in French itself, so I'm going to share this with you instead. Last summer, Jeff learned that the inch, the unit of measurement, was originally based on the length of a man's thumb. So as a French speaker, I already knew that, because in French, the word for inch and the word for thumb are the exact same word. So today I'm going to share words with you that are kind of doing that sort of thing, right? There's two meanings that kind of relate to each other, if you kind of know the story, Um, except all the words I'm going to share with you today are related to aviation. Thought it might be fun to give you guys an opportunity to attempt to guess if you're up for it. So, I've structured each of these so that I give the general literal definition of a French word. And then you can pause if you want. And then I will explain how it pertains to aviation. Okay. So, the first word is décolle, or décollage. That's spelled D, E with an accent, C, O, L, L, E. This is one of those words that doesn't have a perfect uh, translation into English. Dé, the first part of the word, that's un, basically. Colle, that's the French word for glue. And so décolle is a verb, and it refers to something that's gradually losing its stickiness something that's losing its property of adhesion in Quebec French at least not sure about France you can use the word metaphorically so for example if somebody was invading your personal space and you wanted them to just get away you would say hey décolle call, call this. so that would be like French for hey Back off, buddy. If you had a girlfriend who was really clingy and high-maintenance, you would describe her as being colleurs, which would be French for glue-like. So, hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of what this word is about. So, décolle, not being sticky anymore. Can you guess what that might mean? In an aviation-related context. So, if you guys want to take a stab at it, this would be the time to hit the pause button.
1: Pause. Ooh. Pause button Me. is um. Oh, that's not fair. Oh. You know All right, French.
2: right, I'm sorry.
1: But we'll not that just, well. Not very well. Okay, go
3: ahead, Steph.
2: No, it's okay. I'll let others guess first. I'll I'll withhold. So, yeah.
3: Décollage. Nick, any ideas? Uh I I can't think of anything. I'm just trying to think what's not sticky. Well, you used to unstick when you got airborne from the runway. So, I don't know. Is it the act of getting airborne or rotating or something like that? I I was going to say takeoff. Well, let's hear from Josie.
9: Okay. So, some of you might know this one. It's a very, very common term. Décollage is… The takeoff roll. So, for ding example, ding ding. l'avion décolle de la piste. The plane is taking off from the runway, or rather, it unglues itself. The I next thought it was something a girl I'm
3: sorry, what? I thought it was something at girl when she went to her sort of prom. Oh, the uh, did you? Uh, oh, yes, she has a décollage dec- on
1: her dress. Yes, exactly right. So is that?
3: I thought it was like the same uh,
1: word. (laughs) uh, Don't think so. The uh, what you know, we used to do like pieces of wood, and then you put like something from out of a magazine on it, and glue it on there, and then you coat it with a bunch of layers of uh, of uh, shellac. Oh, that's decoupage. Never mind.
3: Very confusing. Yeah.
1: Decoupage. W'e ready to uh, continue. Here we go.
9: Spelled V R I L L E. A vri is a tendril, those curly bits that plants use to climb up walls. A can also refer to a gimlet, as in that simple woodworking tool that's a bit sh- shaped like a corkscrew with a T-handle that's used by carpenters to bore holes in wood. So. When it comes to flying, can you guess what a vri might be? Pause now if you want to guess.
3: Paused. Mm-hmm.
9: This one I don't know. Really?
3: Well, I'm going to say I'm gonna say knew. a spin. Yes, the corkscrew. I bet that's what yeah, it is. Well, that's what I'm thinking because it just resembles uh, the, the flight path of a spin, perhaps.
1: Well, let's see if you're right, Captain Nick. Probably. All right. Could be a prop. Let me yeah. take
9: you to a scene in the French countryside, a carpenter in his workshop, his atelier, sitting at his bench, piloting the holes where his pieces will join with the help of his gimlet, his vrille. down the path outside his door, the vineyard, where des vrais, twining tendrils support a canopy of hanging grapes on a trellis. The dappled sunlight filters through, a soft glow that settles on les vrais, qui brille. the tendrils of chestnut-brown hair on the tanned neck of a beautiful young woman as she picks the grapes. Not noticing, in the distance, where the sky and the horizon meet, the languid drift of a twin-piston aeroplane, the buzz of the engines barely audible over the bright hum of cicadas. Suddenly, the left engine putters out. Foolishly, the young pilot banks into the dead engine. Low and slow, the nose dips down in a cruel, mocking curtsy, right before it enters Lavrie, the tendril the shape of its disastrous trajectory as it spirals, spirals towards the earth. So yeah, in French, a spin is a tendril. I hope I got that right. I'm not a pilot. Sounds
0: very good, the very good, You also have in French the word
9: voyage. So on a propeller, any given blade on that propeller, if it turns once, that... Unit as a whole is going to turn in the same amount of time, but the tip of the propeller obviously is going to follow a longer path than the root. So that's a greater distance in the same amount of time. So the tip, of course, is faster. So since it's faster, the angle of attack at the tip needs to be higher than it needs to be at the root. So effectively, you're going to be introducing a twist to that blade. And um, that phenomenon of twisting that the blade, or the degree to which you are twisting the blade, that is known as voyage in French. You're tendrilizing the blade of the propeller. Okay, next one. The word is lacet. L-A-C-E-T. Lacet. Lacet is the French word for a shoelace or a bootlace. For this one, I'm going to go straight to the answer because in this case, there's really no analogy or metaphor for you guys to work with. There's no way to reasonably guess what this is. So, lasse is the French word for yaw. Adverse yaw in French is lasse. Inversé, so inverted shoelace. A yaw damper, in French, is un amortisseur de lacet. The shoelace, killer almost. More like the indefiner of the shoelace. The next word it. is des croches. D, E with an accent, C, R, O, C, H, E. So... In English, there's a word crochet, which is a type of knitting that uses a uh, needle with a hook at the end of it. So that's based on French. Crochet or crochet is simply the French word for hook. So hook as a verb in French, if you hook something on, you accroche it, and if you are unhooking something, you are decroching it. So decroche is french for unhook so when it comes to aviation when would you be unhooking something pause
1: oops cut her off there unhooking De crochet, De crochet. tie downs tie downs huh? that's an idea mm-hmm.
3: Well, I, would, I would. I would guess it's it's when you start your flight, you push back. Uh, when oh. you uh, release from the
1: tug or something,
3: yeah, or the uh, or the building, you disengage from that. Mm-hmm. What maybe you it could
2: also be for takeoff too.
3: Uh, yeah. Although we already if got the term um, for that.
2: Yeah. No, I know we got that. Yeah.
3: The jetway coming off the aircraft. Okay. Well, oh, to be uh, fair, I, I'm actually thinking more military. There's a hook on the back of most military airplanes, but I think that's probably a bit um, a bit specialist. Yeah. Well, let's hear
1: what the answer is.
9: All right. There's a song, a pop song in French, called Coupilot. And it's about this hunky young co-pilot who becomes miserable and alcoholic over the years, eventually committing suicide by intentionally crashing his aircraft. The song doesn't specify if he's alone in the plane when he does this. Anyway, the bridge of the song goes like this. Ses yeux perce le ciel Il fait ses adieux avant de les ailes translation his eyes pierce the sky. He says his goodbyes before he unhooks the wings.
1: Up oh, I, I see a I, I see somebody waving their hand. Do you have an
3: idea now, Nick? No, I was waving goodbye to the sky. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was acting out the song. Oh, okay. Well,
1: hang on. Let's, uh, let's continue with it, Josie.
9: Of the plane. Have you guessed it? The wings of a plane get unhooked when that smooth laminar flow of air over the upper surface gets disrupted. Most often, when the angle of attack is too high for a given speed. Stall. So, yes, yeah. in French. I uh, wouldn't have got that one. <laughs> stall a plane, you unhook it.
0: Hmm. Well, okay, question. one more. Okay.
9: Guignol. G U I G N O L. Guignol. G-U-I-G-N-O-L. Guignol is the French word for a hand puppet. If you know what Punch and Judy is, the puppet show with the guy with a stick beating his wife, there was a French equivalent to that in Lyon in the 1700s, and the main character in that show was Guignol. Guignol had a um, witty, satirical sense of humor. So by association, the word genial can also refer to an individual who isn't afraid to speak the truth to powerful people uh, in a humorous way. Somebody who uses irreverent humor. So yeah, hand puppets. Where would you see hand puppets in the context of aviation? Once again, this is not guessable, mechanically speaking. So not hydraulics, not fly-by-wire. The inputs of your control column and your rubber pedals are going to deflect your control surfaces through a system of various rods and cables, right? So one component of these assemblies is the bell crank. So bell crank is French is Guignol. Guignol can actually also refer to other related assemblies, for example the aileron horn, but uh, keep it simple and just say that it's a bell crank. A Guignol is a bell crank. So what's a bell crank? So if you turn your yoke, let's say, that's going to result in a rod being pushed in a direction towards the tip of your wing that rod is going to be attached to one end of a bell crank. So a bell crank, what does that look like? Uh, Imagine a boomerang type of a shape. And uh, you're gonna have either tip of that boomerang uh, rods an input and an output. And the unit as a whole, it's gonna pivot around the center, the the corner of that V of the boomerang. So if you have a rod pushing in one direction, it's going to result in translation of motion, um, usually by 90 degrees. So if you have a rod going towards your tip, and that's going to get rotated 90, that's going to go towards your trailing edge. And then your output rod is what's actually going to be deflecting your aileron. So the bell crank is essentially uh, what facilitates that. Sometimes mechanics reinstall them backwards, and that results in aileron authority. So you turn your yoke to the right, the plane banks to the left. Which is why it's not only important to do your pre-flight checks, but also to understand what you're checking for. There is a case here in Canada where a plane crashed right after takeoff because of this Problem And when they interviewed the pilots, who had both survived, obviously, each of them confirmed that they had gone through the appropriate checks of the checklist. But even though one of those pilots was a flight instructor, neither of them had an intuitive grasp of exactly what an aileron is doing, the direction an aileron needs to move. They just looked, they saw that it was deflecting, and then checked it off. So yeah, that's it. I know you guys don't come to Montreal very often, but uh, the next time that you're in Toronto or wherever, um, I'd be totally down to organizing or attending a meetup. I'll be in touch on Slack. Bye.
1: Bye. Wow, that was great. Bye. Nice one. We're going. Fun. We're uh, getting in the airplane and heading up there uh, this weekend. No, I'm just kidding. That was great.
3: <laughs> I wish. That'd be fun. Now, my father always taught me that uh, when you put your stick over to the right, say, the aileron on that side comes up, up. to meet the stick. Yep. yep. Yeah. And I think uh, that's the way I've always remembered it. Of course, when you pull back, the elevator comes up to meet the stick. When you push foot forward, the elevator goes away because you push the stick away. So that's always the way I remember
1: that. Yep. And uh, that should have been something
3: that those pilots knew. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. Should have been that's part right. of their education, right?
3: Yeah, <laughs> I think calling them pilots might be a little exaggeration. <laughs> wow,
1: that was fun! Uh, I think it was. Uh, everybody, uh, at least, game. I'm watching the chat room comments. Everybody uh, seemed to really enjoy that. I know that the crew did here. That was uh, that was a lot of fun and educational. So, thank you, Josine, and uh, she's in the chat room as well. So, um, that's uh, very fortuitous.
3: I could always do with brushing up on my French because, of course, when I go over France, it's always polite to say hello to the controllers in their uh, language. And I try and do the same when uh, we go through Montreal's airspace. But, uh, yeah, I'm not very good at it. And now you're going to say uh, stall, spin,
1: um, bell crank.
2: I have six (laughs) words now, five words.
3: (laughs) And they're going, what is this guy saying? I need to get Josine to uh, translate flick, spin, crash, burn, die for me. (laughs) I'm sure she'll be able to do it. (laughs) Excellent. All right.
1: Uh, That's excellent. Well, uh, let's um, do another um, feedback question. And then after that, we'll go to the plane Tales. uh this one is from nick not not our nick here but nick hewitt uh he said hi guys still listening to the show still suffering from the syndrome and still loving every second i -hmm. listened to dublin atc in my free time a fair bit when doing so recently the airport was under de-icing conditions due to heavy snow so all approaching planes were put into holds uh, and the time between takeoffs and landings was greatly increased All approaching flights were given approach times, and it seemed as most of these times appeared to be accurate. However, I noticed that a large amount of flights opted to divert to Shannon, Liverpool, or Birmingham instead, all of which would have had a flight time similar to, if not the same, as their allocated hold time. I was wondering why these decisions to divert were made in this case. What do you guys take into account when making such decisions? Do you consume more fuel in a hold than during cruise, possibly? Thanks, as always, for the podcast and hard work put into it. I hope to catch one or some of you guys here in rainy South Wales sometime in the future. Nick. So who wants to take a stab at this one?
3: Oh, yeah, sure. This is fairly easy. Um, so you're in a hold and you're giving a, given an approach time uh, and you're looking at your gas. Now, of course, you could um, burn down and um, get rid of the gas that you would use to go to Shannon, Liverpool or Birmingham. Um, but if you're giving away that fuel, your only option is to land at the airfield you're over, i.e. Dublin. Now, if they're suffering from a lot of snow and uh, they're trying to keep keep the runways clear and clear the runways there is always the possibility that the airfield might not actually be available once you've given away that diversion fuel you can't go anywhere you've got to land there and that's not a safe thing to do is to put yourself in that position so the guys that diverted would have had a bit of holding fuel to hang around but because they couldn't be absolutely assured that they could land at uh, dublin when the the fuel level reached that diversion point they would have gone off to with their safe diversion where the conditions would be good. Now we're allowed in my company to burn down and use that diversion fuel under certain circumstances. The weather has to be good and there have to be two independent available runways each with their own approach aid and if those conditions are filled then the captain doesn't have to but he is allowed to uh, burn that diversion fuel and commit himself to landing at his destination airfield as opposed to going to his diversion airfield. But obviously the conditioners at Dublin, I don't even know if Dublin has two runways, I'm not certain. Um, but uh, the conditions obviously there weren't good enough for the pilot, those pilots to do that though, so hence they diverted. Have I got that right, guys?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about giving yourself the most options possible. You don't want to basically back yourself into a corner where you only have one option. That's not a good option. So.
1: Couldn't have said it better. I have nothing to add to that. That was perfect. Both of you. All about options.
3: Good job, Steph. Yeah. Give me, give me five. It's
2: uh, where are you? <laughs>
1: are you it's just, like the Brady spin. bunch we playing <laughs> on video.
2: I don't know. I don't know. which. Uh, oh, wait, are you on this side? It's the story. Uh, now you're on this
0: side.
1: I think it depends. There I think go.
2: it's different for everyone. <laughs> I know. I think it's not the same. <laughs> Okay. No, you, you did all the hard work on that one. I just summed up in one sentence. So. Well,
1: and you summed
3: right. up in one sentence what I took.
1: We could go from a three hour show to a one hour show if we did that every yeah, question. Be, okay. <laughs> all right. As I mentioned before, um, this is a good time, I think, for us to hear this week's installment of Plain Tales. Here we go.
3: The Old Pilot's Plane Tails, Landomatic. I'm going to make this thing fly, do you hear me? Then I'm going to set it afire and never have another thing to do with aeroplanes. So spoke one of the greatest aircraft builders in the history of aviation. His ubiquitous aircraft were eventually to be found in almost every corner of the world, and there is hardly a pilot alive who hasn't at some time flown in, behind, alongside, or more likely trained in one of his popular light aircraft. The man himself, christened Clyde Vernon, died in the same year I was born, 1954, aged 74. He started life some 24 years before the Wright brothers were to get their improbable Wright Flyer Airborne four miles south of Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. His family hailed from France and Germany, and at the age of two they moved to the rural area of Kansas, where Clyde grew up in an age of mechanical wonders. A self-taught mechanic, he used his skills to improve the machinery on the farm where he lived. This led him to become a successful car dealer in Oklahoma, and it was here that he first heard about Louis Bleriot's crossing of the English Channel in a monoplane in 1909, and he was convinced that he could build something similar. The monoplane seemed so much simpler and more elegant than the biplanes that proliferated at the time. When he eventually saw a flying circus at Oklahoma City, he was sold. Selling his dealership, he set about building his first aeroplane. The man, of course, was Clyde Vernon Cessna and his impetuous decision would eventually grow into the manufacturing marvel that was going to become the Henry Ford of the air. Convinced he could make as much as $10,000 from flying exhibitions, he moved to New York and spent some time learning about construction at the factory there. Happy he could build a flying machine, he then spent the enormous sum of $7,500 on a kit that he would assemble, adding his own engine, a modified Elbridge four-cylinder two-stroke, 40-horsepower, water-cooled motorboat engine. He took his finished aircraft to some salt plains about 35 miles from his home, and with his brother Roy, set about becoming an aviator. His first effort ended with an ignominious ground loop that damaged the machine and Clyde needed to find another $100 to fix it. Once it was suitably patched up, the Cessna brothers returned and tried again. Again they were unsuccessful. For ten days they lived in a tent, eating little more than flapjacks, working on their aircraft every time a failed effort ended in a crack In one attempt, Clyde hurt himself so badly he ended up on a pallet for several days. It was after twelve failed attempts that Cessna made his famous quote, but on the thirteenth time, as salty dust and sand burned his brother's face, he signalled him to let go and Clyde accelerated the aircraft that he called silver wings across the flats. Fighting to keep the machine straight in gusty wind conditions, he slowly left the ground beneath him and rose to 50 feet. This actually presented a problem, as Clyde hadn't learned how to turn yet, and with the engine spluttering, he needed to land. A lesson on how turning increases the stalling speed of an aircraft was about to be impressed on him, as he worked the rudder to aim his machine into a clear area. Inevitably, silver wings hit the ground, bounced, and came to rest in some trees. Despite his crash, the crowds that had scoffed at his early failures changed their tone and began calling him a daring hero and nicknamed him the Birdman of Enid. Forgetting his earlier promise to burn his aircraft, he continued to learn until he made a successful five-mile flight landing at the same place he took off from. In December 1912, Cessna made a solemn decision. He sent a message to his mother in Rago, Kansas. We'll make a flying trip home Saturday, he wrote. He shipped his plane by rail, assembled it at the station, and flew home. Circling over the family farm, he landed near the front yard and climbed down from the cockpit whilst his mother watched. Cessna rushed to give her a kiss on the cheek. Beats old Dobbin, doesn't it, mother? he asked. Buoyed by his success, he cut his ties with the automobile industry entirely and took up flying full time, often appearing at holiday events and county fairs. He built a factory and opened a flight school, but when the First World War started, The flying market ground to a halt. In the years after the war, Cessna joined Walter Beach and Lloyd Stearman to found the Travel Air Manufacturing Company in Wichita, Kansas. After a couple of years, Clyde split from his partners over design disputes, that old argument of monoplane versus biplane, and set up his own company. In 1927, the Cessna Aircraft Corporation was formed, and there began a line of successful designs, starting with the Cessna Model A, a high-wing, four-seat, single-engined, monoplane tourer. The CW-6 was a six-seater, and the DC-6, a four-seater version, which was primarily sold to the Army Air Corps. Despite the success of these machines, the Great Depression led to a catastrophic drop in sales and the company filed for bankruptcy, closing in 1931. However, as the economy recovered, so did the Cessna Company. Clyde reopened his Wichita plant in '36, but he soon passed it on to his nephews, returning to a life of farming, although he often came back in a ceremonial capacity. The company went from strength to strength, but all the aircraft followed the same basic design of a single-engine, fixed-undercarriage, high-wing monoplane. The Airmaster C-Series was a great success, as was the twin-engine trainer, the T-50, which sold to the U.S. Army and the Canadian Air Force. However, Cessna was yet to build that ubiquitous light aircraft, which was to become its enduring legacy. The heritage can be seen in the all-metal Cessna 140, named by the US Flight Instructors Association as the outstanding plane of the year in 1948, but it wasn't until 1955 that the Cessna 172 made an appearance. The first production model was delivered in '56, and it remains in production to this very day. It started life as a nose wheel version of the tail-dragger 170, and it became an overnight success. In its first year of production, over 1,400 were built. An advertisement in the Time magazine
8: claimed... New Cessna 172 makes flying like driving. It's true, you can learn to fly the amazing new Cessna 172 into the sky, back down to the ground, thanks to Cessna's patented Landomatic gear. The exciting Cessna 172 makes the convenience, speed, flexibility of flying practical for you because you can fly it yourself. Save on travel costs. Takes you where you want to go, when you want to go. Only $8,750, the complete air fleet for every business need. Over the years, a number of small modifications
3: were applied, a swept-back fin and a lowered rear deck, allowing the incorporation of Omnivision, which in reality was a rear window. There were a variety of choices for engine power, an optional constant speed propeller, higher tank capacity, wheel fairings, I'm sorry America, I refuse to call them wheel pants, and a mod that allowed the use of automobile gasoline. The original version used a lever, known as the Johnson bar, to lower the flaps, but by 1964 this had changed to electric actuation. Of course, there were many more minor changes, but the basic design of the 172 remained. The military T-41 Mescalero version was purchased by 25 countries and over 1,000 were delivered to the U.S. military alone. It's often debated as to why the 172 and its smaller cousin the 2-seat 150 have become the staple of flight training schools across the world. It's certainly sturdy and has a forgiving nature. Its high wing means that students get a good view of the ground Making it easier to land, something that Cessna's marketing department called Landomatic. It's reliable and convenient and has been called the Honda Civic of aircraft. Big enough to be stable and small enough to be economical. Every mechanic knows how to fix it, and spares are always available. It's relatively comfortable, cheap, and easy to maintain. It may not be fast, generally its maximum speed is around 140 miles an hour, but it could go from Berlin to Belfast or New York to Madison, Wisconsin, on one tank of gas. More pilots have earned their wings flying the 172 than on any other aircraft, said Doug May, the vice president of piston aircraft at Cessna. The 172 has also performed some amazing feats of flight. In 1958, Robert Tim and John Cook took off from McCarran Airfield in Las Vegas in a used 172 named Hacienda as part of a fundraising stunt for a cancer charity. They didn't land again for 64 days, 22 hours, 19 minutes and 5 seconds. During that period of over nine weeks, food and water were hauled up by bucket after formating on a chase car on a long straight stretch of highway and dropping a rope. To help them pull the bucket aboard, the right door was replaced by an accordion-style door that could be easily opened in flight. In a similar manner, fuel was pumped through a hose passed up to the aircraft from a fuel truck something they did 128 times. Engine oil was dribbled into the engine through a pipe that passed through the firewall. If you're wondering what happened to the results of their bathroom breaks, well, the desert is a big place. Early in the record-breaking flight, the electric generator failed, so a champion wind-driven generator was passed up and bodge-taped onto a wing strut, where the little propeller was free to turn in the slipstream. What little power it produced was transferred through a wire plugged into the aircraft's cigarette lighter socket. From now on, the only cockpit lighting would be a little string of fairy lights. There was only one seat in the 172, since the rest of the cabin was used by the resting pilot, who slept on a pad. Eventually, with the engine clocking up, 1,558 hours of continuous operation, its output began to deteriorate to the point where they could hardly climb away from their support vehicles, and they landed. After the flight, Cook said, Next time I feel in the mood to fly Endurance, I'm going to lock myself in our garbage can with the vacuum cleaner running. That's until my psychiatrist opens up for business in the morning. The amazing little Hacienda 172 can still be seen at McCarran International Airport hanging in the passenger terminal. The record set by Tim and Cook still stands to this day. The 172 also hit the headlines in 1968 when the German student Matthias Rust flew one from Helsinki to Moscow, right through the supposedly impenetrable air defence system that surrounded the city, and although he was detected by missile systems, permission to launch wasn't given in time. Fighters were scrambled, but they intercepted the wrong aircraft. Rust flew over the city for some time and eventually landed on a bridge right next to Red Square. Remarkably, the trolley car wires that were usually over the bridge had only been removed that day for maintenance. After taxiing past St Basil's Cathedral, he stopped about a 100 metres from Red Square, where he was greeted by curious passers-by and was asked for his autograph. It took two hours before he was finally arrested. For a while after the incident, Red Square was jokingly referred to by Moscovites as shiemet 3, shiemet 1 and 2 being the two terminals at Moscow's main international airport. Rust was jailed for four years, but officially pardoned after 14 months. The incident actually helped Mikhail Gorbachev, the premier, to implement many reforms by allowing him to dismiss numerous military officials opposed to his policies for incompetence. Sadly, some famous people have met their end on a 172. In 1964, Ken Hubbs, a baseball player for the Chicago Cubs, flew his 172 into poor weather and crashed. The boxer Rocky Marciano was returning home for a birthday party in 1969 when he crashed into a tree, also in poor weather. However, overall the 172 has a very good safety record and is safer than all comparative aircraft such as the Piper Cherokee, the AA Fire Traveller and the Aerospatial Tobago. In particular, It is about half as likely to be involved in IMC-related accidents than other light singles. In 1985, Cessna stopped building light aircraft in the US for a while because of excessive product liability lawsuits, but production continued at the Reims factory in France. More recently, production was started in China, and the 172S is still being made at Wichita. There may even be a place for this long-lived aircraft well into the future, as Cessna has announced that it is developing an electric version in conjunction with the company by energy. I suspect that once we've finished our basic lessons in flying, there may be many pilots who would want to move on to something more sleek and fast, but when all is said and done... I suspect that most of us would look back on our days mastering flight with a Cessna trainer with great nostalgia. I know that I do when I think back to that special day in 1973 when I first soloed an a Cessna 150. Lots of pilots look down on the humble Cessna 172, but by some distance it is the most produced aircraft in history there having been more than 44,000 built, and the aircraft has been in constant production for over 60 years. Add the Cessna 172 and 150 trainers together, and we get over 75,500 aircraft, a figure that beats the production of the next two in the list, the wartime Aleutian IL-2 and the Messerschmitt Bf 109, Combined. Not bad for an aircraft that dares call its autopilot Navomatic, its windows Omnivision, its instruments Quick Scan, its beacon Omni Flash, and its landing gear Landomatic. Nice.
1: I know we're going to have a good discussion about Cessnas right now.
3: <laughs> well I love done. The Cessna 172. Uh, yeah. I mean, is it the same uh, sort of rivalry between Airbus, Boeing, uh, between Cessnas and Pipers? I mean,.
2: They were were the
3: other one of the other main uh, trainer aircraft. It it
2: becomes more of a high wing, low wing debate at Ah, that point, as opposed to manufacturer. I think,
4: but well, well, and and I'll I'll be honest with you, I was never a fan, or never have been a fan of the one of the Cessna product. I'm a I'm a Piper guy through and through. I'm a low wing guy, and when I was uh, when I was instructing in, I was learning how to fly. I was flew the Piper because I found that aircraft was far more stable, especially in an instrument environment. Than the than the Cessna one seventy two, which tends to be a little bit more squirrely. What'd you solo in, Dana? I soloed in a Piper Warrior. Okay,
1: very cool. So
4: it's kind of it's kind of what kind of in in our debate back and forth. It really depends. You know, as an airline pilot, you know what you fly and what you're familiar with and what you you're birthed in per se. So Mm -hmm. you know the argument. You know, Airbus versus Boeing, Cessna versus. Ford, Chevy. Hybrid. Ford, Chevy, exactly. It goes all the way down. And, you know, Dr. Steph said it right. I mean, it's high-wing versus low-wing. I'm a low-wing guy because I find that the platform is just a little more stable. Steph, you
1: yeah. uh, soloed in? A
2: 172. There you go. A 172. And I think I have my first over 100 hours for an Assessment 172. So, although at this point...
1: It's all serious, it right?
2: Really, exactly. <laughs> I've moved away from either of those. No, uh, I, I can honestly go back and forth between the two, and it doesn't
3: make a huge difference to me which one I'm flying. So, Nick, have you flown a Cessna? Between Cirrus and Piper. Uh, it was my first powered aircraft. So uh, I got a scholarship to learn to fly on powered aircraft, and uh, the school I went to flew Cessna. So, yeah, uh, I carried on working at that school for uh, a little bit after as well. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one of the stories I remember telling uh, when I nearly killed myself uh, taxiing them and putting them away in a hangar when I uh, left a, an aircraft with the Magneto still alive and then uh, turned the prop over by hand, which gave me a bit of a shock when the engine started. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I always thought the Pipers were just a little more awkward. I mean, the, that big wing in the way... And uh, quite honestly, uh, the Cessna should be more stable than a Piper. I mean, uh, we all know that a high wing is a, a very naturally stable aircraft. Um, yeah, so, and certainly... Well, in an it's, I think
2: it's to, a different type of, uh, it's it's more the feel of stability that I think Dana is talking about. Um, I get exactly what he's saying, having you know, spent probably an equal amount of time. The, the Piper just feel, it, it's a... And I might be wrong here, but I believe it's a little bit heavier, so I think that's where more of the stability feel comes. Uh, if you're comparing like a Cessna Cessna 172 okay. to a Piper uh, Cherokee,
4: so um, it's a, it's, a, it's a different wing design, um, and also the the uh, Piper versus the Cessna, the tail design is is a bit different too, and the uh, the um, rudder is a little more. Um, Loose is probably the best word I have on the Cessna 172, I think. It's not loose like it's going to fall off, but it just has a looser feel to it, whereas the Piper is a tighter feel. Interesting. Uh, so I've flown uh, the Cessna 150,
1: 152, Cessna 172. I was I soloed in the military version of the Cessna 172 the T41 Mescalero. And uh, also, I, I have a lot of time in an airplane that uh, most people don't think about as being a Cessna. The T-37B was made by
3: Cessna. Yeah, Yeah, of course, they branched out and and built jets and all sorts now. Mm -hmm. By the way, while we've got a moment, I must thank uh, Sean McHale, who uh, first asked me to uh, perhaps look at the Uh, So this is a plain tale, and I must admit, I wouldn't really have thought about it, and I thought, this isn't going to be very exciting, but I think there's a huge amount of nostalgia uh, attached to this aircraft. And when I realized just how many of the damn things they built, I'm going, that's incredible. Uh, I mean, it's leaps and bounds above uh, other manufacturers. I think, obviously, Piper pilots are something of a niche uh, element. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. in comparison, wonderful. Well, I think that the uh, folks listening to the show, especially general aviation pilots, will uh, will uh, be able to uh, get a lot from that uh, plane tale. And thank you again for for doing it, Captain Nick. I know it. Uh, cool. You Love take it. a lot of time to do it, and we can tell. <laughs> Thanks, John Agon- Agarano? Agarano something like that. Writes, hello, I just wanted to say I love your podcast. Well, thanks, John. We love you. thought I would uh, say that and add a funny just to a trip to Charlotte and was at the Overlook for about an hour tonight before I departed. I subsequently watched four uh, American Airlines aircraft take off sequentially that all forgot to turn on their strobes on departure. Crazy stuff to see, especially all in a row. Thanks for your awesome content. Keep it coming. So, what kind of airplanes were those? Uh, that you know, maybe they were airplanes that don't have strobes, or I don't know. So, we're talking uh, really
2: about anti collision lighting system. I'm trying to, you know, I don't know for certain, but so it's either a beacon strobe system or both. Yeah. And technically, if you have both, you should be using both. Um, right. Especially once you're off the ground. Um, sometimes on the ground, strobes can be, um, distracting especially to other aircraft if you're in a a busy environment and there is um, provisions within the FAR and AIM that if you're in adverse weather conditions or if it would be um, unwise to use them you can turn them off but once you're in the air day or night they are supposed to be used so I'm not sure.
4: Well I mean in all honesty like with our, our aircraft Jeff Strobes that do not turn on on the ground. It's a weight on, weight on wheels or in-flight uh, right. shift uh, sensor. So very possible that the aircraft, I don't know which aircraft he's in, in reference to. That's
1: the key, um, I think, here. Uh, what kind yes. of airplane and what kind of design with the uh, strobes, and if they even have strobes. Yeah. Um. I, I'm trying to recall whether the 727 that we flew even had. I don't think they had strobes on the 727 at Acme.
4: I think every aircraft now, every commercial aircraft now has strobes on it. So okay. I, I would imagine it's a weight on wheels.
1: So that's a m- uh, moot point then, I guess.
4: Yeah.
3: Just I mean, a question then, guys. In ACME, do you rely on the weight on wheels or do you physically turn the strobes on before that? No. It's, a strict, it's a strict function of the weight on wheels. Yes. Okay. It's just that uh, we used to do that, but then the Civil Aviation Authority said because of the possibility of an aircraft um, hitting another one that's on the threshold waiting to take off, a la LAX, mm-hmm. you'll remember that incident um, they want the strobes turning on as soon as you enter the runway environment so we now manually turn them on, I mean the, the and wheels is belt and braces just in case you forget they will automatically come on but we manually turn them on as soon as we uh, enter the runway The, uh, the, on the Mad Dog, the switches,
4: we can manually turn them off in flight. If, for example, if we're flying through IMC conditions and you're getting that flash and that's, you know, bothering you. But uh, on the ground, the switch is always, presumably, as long as the first officer has done his job properly, should always be in, in the both position, which is the strobes in the uh, position lights. So, as long as they're both in the, it, the the switch is in the both position as soon as we go airborne the strobes will come on but before that unless they did you know were to disconnect the sensor from the weight on wheels we would have no manual control over the strobes on the ground
0: oh, okay
2: and at charlotte watching four american airlines aircraft take off it's a good chance that they were either the airbus A319 320 321 or if it was the regionals, CRJ 200, 700, 900, because that's the vast majority of aircraft landing and departing, especially um, if you're looking at the overlook. So. Well,
3: that's interesting because to prevent them uh, coming on, at least on the weight on wheels, if you forget to turn them on manually at the end of the runway, um, you actually physically have to select them off, which seems a little unlikely. But there you go. Yeah. Well, that was a good question. Thank you, uh,
1: John, for it. Um, now this next piece of feedback, again from Liz, and it, it, it's actually I'd have to say pretty crappy.
0: <laughs> um, I'd agree. I'd agree.
2: Yeah, uh, oh. I should
1: have I should have done this as soon as I said crappy. All right. Indian officials suspect an icy ball which fell on a village in the northern state of Haryana is a frozen human waste leaked from an airplane overhead. The 10 to 12 kilogram, while well, it's heavy, 22 to 26 pounds, chunk of ice fell on a village in India, I cannot pronounce, <laughs> with a big thud, startling residents on Saturday. Senior Gurgaon official Vivek Kalia told the BBC some villagers thought it was an extraterrestrial object. Plane toilets store human waste in special tanks. These are normally disposed of once the airplane has landed. But international aviation authorities acknowledge that lavatory leaks can occur in the air. Uh, Mr. Kalia told the BBC that a sample of the projectile had been sent for chemical analysis analysis but we <laughs> suspect strongly that it is frozen airline excrement it gets better wait just stay with me here it was a very heavy ice ball of ice which dropped from the skies early on saturday morning there was a big thud and people of the village came running out of their homes to find out what happened he said some villagers thought it was an extraterrestrial object others thought it was some celestial rock and i've heard that they took some samples home
0: oh.
1: yeah so uh yeah, the Times of any newspaper reported that people sneaked a few pieces into their clothes and stored them in refrigerators at home. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh,
0: uh, that stinks! Uh, uh,
1: uh, <laughs> right next to your food for dinner. <laughs> oh, <nice. Yes. laughs> Um, in December of 2016, a court of in, in India ruled that airlines in India would be fined if their planes release human waste from toilets in the air. Now, that makes it sound like we have the ability to go, hmm, I'm going to release some human waste. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can't. There's no way we can do that. Um, you know, it's got to be a, some kind of a leak, an accidental uh, situation where these things kind of form and then they just get so heavy in the airstream, they just drop em. Um, let's see, uh, in January, 2016, a woman in central Madhya Pradesh state suffered a severe shoulder injury when she was hit by a football sized chunk of ice, which fell from the air and crashed into the roof of her house. Um, anyway, it goes on to talk about, uh, you know, incidents where people have been hit or, or human waste ice balls have, you know, crashed through roofs and caused damage and, and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, anyway, what do you think about that?
4: I think, I think a lot of craps falling in the sky in India. <laughs> it sounds I think it like stinks. It, it really <laughs> stinks. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. Okay. Well, um, it's
3: interesting. Even over the UK, the CAA say that 25 falls of blue ice. And, of course, on aircraft where they color the flushing liquid blue, that's where what color it turns are reported every year from the two and a half million. So 25 lumps of uh, blue ice, that's an awful lot of leakage. That is. That's way too many. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, I I can understand it being quite common if uh, the gray water from the sinks, uh, um, if that falls off, because that is uh, drained out of the aircraft directly into the airstream uh, through a um, a heated pipe at the base of the aircraft. And if that pipe uh, heat up fails, then that can form a big lump of ice. Uh, but that's not uh, human waste. That's just, you know, uh, water from the sinks. Um, no, to get, <laughs> I'm trying to work out how you get the stuff from the the tanks to uh, leak out and uh, only through the pipe that the uh, honey cart would connect to uh, um, when the tanks are serviced. But then you'd not only have to have. Uh, the door there missing. You'd have to have the valve there, and you'd have to actually activate the system so that it started flowing. I don't know, but yeah. uh, obviously some airplanes might be susceptible to it. Well, we didn't, we didn't have that problem this morning coming out of Baltimore
4: at all. You didn't? No, because they didn't even have any blue juice to service the airplane with this morning. Oh, right. To okay. Deactivate the 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 lavatory because there was none.
3: Can't you use plain water? I don't know. I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if they're allowed know. to do that or
1: not. Wow, I've never heard of that. Why did they not have blue juice? I don't know. Hmm. It, at Baltimore. Baltimore. <laughs> Baltimore. Yeah, uh, Baltimore. Yeah, that's all you have to say.
3: A lot. Well, you can yeah. always try strawberry or uh, something else instead. You know, instead green of the blueberry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> all right. Well, thanks uh, again for the crappy feedback, Liz. We can always count yeah. on you for that. <laughs> yep. Um. Vaughn writes: Hi, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Doctor Steph, and Captain Dana. I would just like to offer my thanks to all of the APG crew for producing an, inf- an informative and occasionally humorous podcast. What?
3: Very occasionally.
1: He put that Are in parentheses. We, occasionally, occasionally, with a with an exclamation point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think for it's sure. always very humorous.
3: Ser- Come on. Yeah. Well, I'm very serious. Oh, that's true. Okay. Well, then I'm, I'm not going to take seriously. It. I can be seriously funny. Yeah, well,
4: seriously. Yeah, we've awesome. always we wow. seriously funny. <laughs> looking, looking. Let's finish the sentence.
3: Okay. Looking, seriously funny.
4: Looking. As an aging av
1: geek, but not a member of the professional aviation community, I find the shows absorbing and informative, and learn about a new facet of flying in every show. I actually do too. Uh, I met Captain Nick very briefly at the RAF Cosford uh, lecture last Thursday. And his talk on his RAF experiences was fascinating, especially the bear hunting. Oh, I didn't know you talked about going out there and hunting for bears. Yeah, I did. I have a big gun. Ah, that's what we've heard. Hmm. Yeah.
3: Gatling gun.
9: That's what she
3: said.
1: Um, My question for the APG crew is in relation to the allocation of duties on the flight deck on a commercial airliner. Who makes the decision on who is going to fly the airplane on a particular sector? And uh, as he he goes on, is this decided by the captain on the day or is the division of duties determined by another department in the airline so that the skills of first officers are developed on structured basis? A simple question, but one that I've often wondered about. Once again, many thanks to producing such a great show every week. Keep up the good work. Keep the blue side up. And again, this Vaughn Turney in ascot uk i think it's Dana would be a, the perfect person to answer this one
2: i was gonna take a guess it's rock paper scissors right
1: uh no short short of straw um oh sure, sure. yeah well, it depends yep. on the captain i guess okay yeah dana have you ever had an experience where the allocation of duties somehow ends up uh skewed uh, against you not in your favor
4: well kind of funny you should ask that yeah <clears throat> my last trip last week was such a joy. (laughs) Yeah, you know all about it, actually. That's why you're even asking. Mm -hmm. Last week, I had the distinct pleasure of getting rerouted, as I mentioned earlier in the show. But fortunately for me, I had four captains. And all four captains, well, no. All right, let me step back. The last captain I flew with was the first captain that was actually kind enough to take into consideration uh, whether I should fly or not, because the other three immediately as soon as got on the aircraft we're going to fly the aircraft. Well, the previous three, the first guy I flew with, we did a round trip to San Antonio. Of course, at WAC, we, we tend to have the captain fly the first leg when you fly as a new pair, another captain, first officer. So generally he tends to take or she tends to take the first leg. So that's what happened to San Antonio. And I flew back, then got rerouted ended up with a new captain who then proceeded to fly that leg, then got rerouted. Um, no I'm sorry, he didn't he ended up having to stay in Jackson for thirty four hours for crew rest issues. So I picked up a new captain in Jackson to then insist as soon as he got on the aircraft that he's flying the leg back to Atlanta. And when he got on when I told him, you know, I haven't flown the airplanes like the fourth leg I'm flying and I've only flown once, I don't care. Basically, it was his attitude. Oh, and, and, and his response was, "Well, if you want to fly," and it was very curt about it. So I knew if if I said, "Yeah, I really want to fly," and he would have been kind of in a bad mood about it. So I just said, "You know what? I'll work the radios and the landing gear handle, whatever." Then have another captain when I get to the one that got me sick. Have another captain. So is that three that's three at that point, have another captain They end up picking up to go to Panama City Beach. We get down to Panama City Beach, and he's the guy that's sick. I flew one leg with him. and you know, By the way, he's the one that flew to Panama City Beach. He didn't let me fly either. Didn't even ask me at all. Just assumed that he's flying it. We end up getting to Panama City Beach. The flight cancels to go back to Atlanta. We end up on an overnight Panama City Beach. So I end up deadheading the next day back to Atlanta. And then Finally, the last captain I flew with, we did a round trip to, uh, oh, my God, where do we go? Baltimore. Yes, Baltimore. Uh, he, he actually, had, at the gatehouse, asked me, which leg will you fly? And I looked straight at him, and I said, well, geez, thanks for caring. <laughs> because you're the first guy that really asked me which leg I'd like to fly. Not that it really usually matters, because I really don't normally care. But when you sit there for three days, and all you do is talk on the radio, Move the gear handle, and get sick from the captain. He picked up a white slip. Uh, it gets a little frustrating. So fortunately, the last guy asked me which one would you like to fly. He said, "Well, actually, I haven't flown at all this week." He says, "Well, you can have both if you want I Said, "No, really, I don't want both. But if you don't mind, I'd like to take the ball Like the ball. one." He did. There's no problem. So, but yeah, that's uh, it's time to upgrade to captain, guys. Just yeah, saying. exactly. Just We're time ready. to go We're to ready. captain. <laughs> I that just, <laughs> just really these things my you butt. know
2: that you need to. Uh, Take with you going forward, right? That you remember.
4: Oh yeah, and- I, I, I I would I will always be courteous yeah. like that. I mean, it's just it's pretty much SOP. And a, a buddy of mine that's uh, in safety here at uh, Acme, um, and I were talking about this. Actually, believe it or not, statistically, when most accidents occur, is the first flight, or most problems occur, is the first flight at a, when a crew is together, for the first mm-hmm. time. So it makes more sense that as a captain, you let the first officer take the first leg because you can kind of watch things better. And there's been an industry study on this and that actually is true. And it's better for the captain to kind of sit back and watch the whole operation on the first leg. But at ACME, it's just standard practice. And I don't know why or really it really, It's know. really tradition. Really? It's really tradition that the captain kind of sets the tone, flies the first leg. Okay. When I become captain, mark my words. I will I will talk to the first officer. Now if the first officer has 150 hours, I might not be so inclined. Uh, but if you know the airplane the first officer's been on the airplane for an hour you know, a year or two and is very comfortable with the aircraft, I don't care which leg we fly, just you know, just fly. If you want to fly, fly. You know, which one I'll ask, which one do you want to fly? what do you want to fly?
1: Yeah. So uh at ACME anyway, we can say that uh, it's the captain's discretion. And captain's, you know, choice and decision on uh, how it's allocated, but traditionally, as Dana just mentioned, um, the captain normally takes the first leg, and I think that m- I, th- I would guess that most first officers probably prefer that as well, because they kind of they'll get a chance to see how the captain flies the airplane, how he operates the automation, and that kind of thing to just kind of get idea of, you know, um, of of the of the style of the captain, I guess, but. Um, what I usually do, if I know, if I, if I were one of these captains that was flying with Dana in the midst of this reroute, the first thing I would have asked him is, said, okay, where are you in the rotation as far as, you know, legs? And then you would have said, well, I haven't flown since, you know, two days ago. And they said, okay, well, then, then it's your leg. Uh, and, let, you know, if you want. So uh, I'm surprised that only one of those guys did that. And uh, a little perplexed about that. But Yeah. So what was going on see- with, their,
2: with their bad week as well? Probably lots of the same. Issues and yeah, potentially, but, okay. and that just makes people unhappy and, you know, just, yeah, let's just get this done and here's how we're going to do it.
4: So what, what was surprising I'm is everybody, I'm sorry. I just want to say to, to, this in response to Jeff in, in that I was very surprised that it wasn't junior guys It was all very senior. That even, um, top, that even top blows me away more. Um, that the Top 100 guys. Yeah. That's interesting. So I'm sorry, Nick, I digress. Go ahead.
3: Not at all. I was just laughing a bit because uh, uh, on the best of months, we would get uh, perhaps four or five landings in a month. Now, you missed out on a few landings in four days, but how many did you get for the rest of the month? Um, oh,
4: I don't know. I probably do at least four or five per trip. Yeah, so, there you go. You see. Right. So
3: it, in, in my book, that would be a yeah, big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, when you've actually only got the potential to do uh, four or five in an entire month, then it actually becomes quite important who gets the landings. I mean, it becomes really important. And uh, generally speaking, it's still the captain, but, of course, as guys uh, get uh, so few landings and they come up to the point where they could uh, run out of recency, um, we get a marker against their name uh, when uh, we pick up the crew list uh, PL, which means this pilot needs a landing. And um, it would be a foolish captain who decided to rob him of that chance and let him run out of recency. But uh, so, And also, of course, uh, we get three guys on an aircraft, so someone's always going to miss up on a landing mm-hmm. when you've got a heavy crew. So uh, that makes a big Yeah, it's a different well. world in the uh, long haul, that's for sure. Absolutely, yep. Yeah.
2: And okay. I would imagine that perhaps this actually can vary across different companies too, just based on what their operating procedures are. So. I would
4: guess. Well, probably. And and just as sort of a rebuttal on on uh, you know what what Nick said is, you know, there's one reason why I'm selling this aircraft is because I really enjoy flying. And when you take the opportunity on a trip away from me to fly and let me sit there, I kind of take exception to that because we're there to fly even though in the month and the way it's an international pilot, you think you want currency. It has nothing to do with currency. It's the fact that I like to fly the airplane. So I basically had that completely taken away from me. It's it, As I said, the doctor, I think I said, said in an, in, in an ABG taxes, you know, basically if you're a fully certified surgeon and you go into the operating room and they force you to, cause the other surgeon is more senior or whatever, force you to observe the surgeries multiple surgeries back-to-back, you know, you kind of want to get your hands in there and, and do the work. So that's really kind of, kind of how I felt. All right. Yep. Well, yes, Steph, you had something
2: to add. Oh, no, I was just agreeing with Dana.
1: Okay. Excellent. Well, that was a good uh, good question and good discussion. And um, uh, if you're flying for another carrier out there that does it differently, like if, is it stipulated in your operating manual, let us know. But as far as I know, it's probably cl- pretty close to the same. You know, the captain is the one that finally or makes the final decision about, you know, who does what, I would imagine. All right. We have some audio feedback from a uh, well, a couple of hosts of a new podcast.
3: Hello, Captain Jeff, APG crew and listeners. It's AG and RH from Opposing Bases Air Traffic Talk, just responding to an inquiry that came up in uh, episode 307, reference uh, the ATIS code and dissemination of weather by air traffic. Uh, I believe the question was, are our controllers required to make sure that the pilot has the most current weather information? Uh, the example was, you know, uh, aircraft checks in with Aidas Charlie. Controller says Aidas Delta's is current now. Advise when you have Delta. Um, yes, that is the requirement, and that is the that is the one hundred percent right answer. Um, that is the controller's responsibility to hear from the pilot that they have the most recent information.
7: The uncool pi- or uncool controllers that. May ask you to get the current code. Maybe they don't have time to read the new string of weather. Maybe they're unsure whether or not there's been changes outside of the wind, altimeter, and temperature settings that we see in the uh, in the radar room, and uh, they're not comfortable just spitting out the new weather sequence. So, strictly adhering to the 7110, which is our rule book, landing information contained in the ATIS broadcast may be omitted if the pilot states the appropriate ATIS code. So us reading it to you may or may not meet that requirement. Us making sure you tell us you have it does. Right. Um, The second question that you had during episode 307 alluded towards the mystery of the title of our show, Opposing Bases, Air Traffic Talk. Captain Jeff, you said we still don't know what that means. And you are correct. It has a meaning and we will discuss that today on episode four. Yeah, so watch for episode four and the secret to the name. Thank you, APG listeners, and thank you, Captain Jeff. All right, we'll see you.
1: Hey, you may be new on the scene in the aviation podcasting world, but you certainly know how to tease a podcast and promote a podcast. Yeah. Want to
2: find out more? Tune in tonight at 7. Yeah, episode or, four. Yeah. You'll find episode out. Four.
1: <laughs> and, yeah. okay, guys, I guess... Yeah, I shouldn't have said the cool. The cool uh, controllers do this, and you know, without really knowing what the well, rules I, I were. I think they're cool. I th- we think we're, you're, you guys are cool. Even I, if- I
3: would say guys who say go and get the information, I'd say loosen up, mate. Come on, give me a break here. I'm working.
1: <laughs> we have things to do here, you know.
3: Yeah, we do. We have like things to eat and uh, <laughs> coffee to drink and. We can't be running around getting every bloody uh, ATIS. Gosh, give me a break.
2: <laughs> what about those poor air traffic controllers? They have to, to eat.
3: and Yeah, they, they only work things for things four hours at a go, and then they're, they're off. They're off to go and watch the telly and listen to podcasts and stuff their faces. <laughs> I mean, I have to work for like... 15 hours at a go and i don't get up i feel
2: it. so bad for you yeah no,
3: it's tough tough life, life yeah. I, I never work yeah so i feel bad for you yeah and jeff knows how tough it is he found it hard just being a passenger i know it was terrible yeah i don't mean, know
1: well, how people do it
3: yeah <laughs> exactly right oh lucky. man <laughs> jeff's lucky love it love it i i'm I've got some great questions for those guys. I mean, they—they. I hope they're going to deal with the one that I uh, popped in uh, into their show uh, just a few days ago. I hope they've got time to do that on episode four, but I've got a few more in my, up my sleeve. I can't wait. It's real nice actually uh, being absolutely serious to have some air traffickers there to uh, explain why things happen. And I must admit, hearing that it's in the rule book, when as pilots, we, yeah, we have a rule book and we generally know where it's put, but I can't say that we know it so well that we go, oh, we, we have to do it that way because that's what the rule book says. Yeah, we refer to it at times when things are really important, but uh, it seems to me that the air traffic world has a kind of slightly different attitude towards the rule book, like you don't step outside it. But I don't know, perhaps that's just my impression.
2: And probably for good reason.
1: So So, um, I'm not even sure we mentioned the name of the podcast, uh, Opposing Bases. Opposing Bases podcast. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, As Captain Nick said, a couple uh, air traffic controllers who are also pilots. And uh, another person that fits that uh, description is Brandon Gonzalez. He started his uh, podcast podcast on a plane uh, or podcasting on a plane and uh, that's a great show as well and he is a uh, air traffic controller and i believe he's a pilot too you yeah. uh should check it out um both of those podcasts available on itunes check it out
3: um, well i really enjoyed opposing bases by the way it's a really good uh, podcast those guys are getting the swing of it and it's starts start to sound very professional all right moving on
1: to the next one um i think i need to play something here
6: we're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're going
4: green.
1: So, again, from Liz, uh, this is an article regarding an airport in Maine, Portland to be exact. They are the first to use 100% recycled de icing fluid. They're going green. Officials with of Maine's largest city say Portland Internet, International Jetport. Is the first airport in the country to use 100% recycled de-icing fluid. Airport director Paul Bradbury said for the past six years, we've captured the aircraft de-icing fluid sprayed at the jet port to ensure it doesn't mix with the storm water. And uh, our partners at Inland Technologies have taken that process, worked with the FAA to be able to process the collected fluid, remanufacture it, turn it into usable aircraft de-icing fluid. This is the first facility of its kind in the United States, and we are proud to say that with this expansion, we are setting a new benchmark for winter operations sustainability. And that's from Inland's president and CEO, Roger Langill. So congratulations, Portland, Maine, for, for being green. We're going
7: green. We're going green.
4: We're going to take care
1: of the earth. are going green. green. I just love the opportunity to play that. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That should make main man Micah so happy and proud.
3: Absolutely. Um,
1: and finally, if I'm looking at this right, and I didn't skip any. Looks like the last one here in our mailbag is from Christian and he said well here's a couple of flight attendants who got a wedding ceremony that they were not expecting according to airlive.net uh the attendants were flying on the pope's flight from santiago chile to e uh iquique chile and the two met the pontiff they mentioned that their wedding ceremony was canceled due to an earthquake destroying their church the day they were supposed to get married and the Potiff asked if they would like him to conduct the ceremony right there on the plane. And they agreed. I suppose this would be the ultimate honor for a Catholic couple. And so the article uh, starts off by saying to LATAM. Is that LATAM? Is mm-hmm. that the, okay. Is that the way you say that? So. Uh, airlines flight attendants were on the top or on the trip from Santiago to Iquique, Um Chile, uh, as all crew members are given the opportunity to do, they went up to the front of the aircraft for a photo with Pope Francis. When the Pope asked them if they were married, the couple revealed the story of how the deadly quake had forced them to cancel their wedding. The pontiff asked if they would like him to conduct the ceremony right there on the plane. The Pope uh, asked them repeatedly if they were sure. But they didn't waver. Pope Francis, pope Francis. Pope Francis. Pope Francis blessed the wedding rings the couple had worn since their civil ceremony. The couple who met when uh, Podest was working as I guess that's one of the uh, flight Those attendants. Those
2: are the two uh, flight attendants. Okay.
1: Yes. Uh, was working as the other one's boss. Now live in Santiago with their two children, and then they have a picture here in the article of a, a very nice uh, uh, certificate, I guess, signed by the Pope. And so um, now I just wanted to mention and, and uh, you know, I started off podcasting as Catholic pilot. So um, I, I've been a Catholic since 2000. And I just want to say that, um, first of all, they were married civilly in what does it say? 2011 or something like yes. that. And it's 2018 now. <laughs> doesn't sound well, to me like know, life, really... <laughs>
2: life happens and you know. life.
1: <laughs> so you're
2: anyway. planning you your wedding day and there was an earthquake quake that destroyed the church you know that's the day you had set aside from uh-huh. your friends you're probably put effort into it and then that we're past that now so let's. Not i mean that. that's just a hard thing to yeah put back together
1: yeah so it's true i can understand but um but there is a difference between a uh, like a legal marriage contract yes. and a sacramental marriage and that's what they were missing if they were practicing catholics they need to you know have a sacramental marriage and uh and anyway and the other thing i wanted they do to do that
2: one day that the pope would be available a, to they do must that have known them. yeah it was and, worth the wait
1: and then also i was going to say technically and I, i'm really getting technical here the pope did not marry them they they actually married themselves uh, because when two people get together in a sacramental marriage they are the ones that are actually affecting the sacrament a sacrament is a outward invisible sign of inward and spiritual divine grace and uh, in the catholic church and orthodox churches the rites of baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, ordina- ordination, and matrimony are the seven sacraments. And then some Protestant churches recognize baptism and communion or Eucharist as uh, as uh, sacraments. But uh, I, I guess they've given up on the marriage thing. <laughs> it's like, that's not a sacrament. But. Nah. Uh, Anyway, I know that many of you listening to the show are, are you know, remember that I was, uh, you know, started off doing this as a, as a Catholic pilot and I still am, by the way, but uh, I just wanted to uh, just kind of set a little bit of that uh, record straight. But I think that must have been an exciting thing to be working the, just to be on the airplane with the Pope and working the flight and then, you know, having this opportunity uh, be, you know, avail to them. They, that must have been, you know, amazing. And uh, I don't know anybody that would turn that down. Yeah. I would.
4: <laughs> well, of course you would. You're not Catholic <laughs> or Christian? <laughs> I'm a good Catholic. Not. <laughs> anyway.
1: So, uh, but anyway, it's kind of a cool thing, and uh, yeah,
2: and a feel good story to end.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: I like exactly. that.
1: Very good. Thank you, Christian, and uh, Liz also mentioned it as well. So uh, that. That leads us to the end of the show. Uh, you guys have anything else to uh, add or subtract before we sign off for today's
4: episode? My throat yeah. feels better. Yeah. That's I hope a little better.
3: Yeah, good luck with that. I'd drink How? some milk and uh, and honey, and that'll help. Lots of water. water. Yeah. Water. Okay. All right. Um, let's good see. Good Pardon? Oh, no, I was just saying good luck with getting your throat out of Yeah. And um, thank you. Sounds like uh,
1: Nick, you're finally over that uh, long drawn out uh, cough and kind of cold that you had. I guess.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling much better. Still got the occasional cough, just catches. But mm-hmm. uh, really, honestly, I'm uh, I'm a cured man, uh, and um, I, I'm looking forward to my next trip, which in theory will be Miami at the end of the month, but. I'm still waiting to see if uh, they have found a training captain to turn that into a line check for me. All right. Still uh, not
1: holding my breath. Well, let us know. And, Steph, uh, I know you were mm. a, a, li- a bit under the weather uh, about a week or so ago. Are you feeling better now?
2: Oh, that was actually. Couple of weeks, two ago? or three weeks ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was it was the week between Christmas and New Year's. It oh, was
1: well. Never mind then. that. That was, was last year. That's old. I've
2: been better. I've been better since then. But okay, today, in particular, I'm feeling very tired. So I apologize yeah. if I was kind of quiet today. I was just.
0: Oh.
2: I don't know. Um. And I haven't been the past few days. I thought, you know, I would be after getting back from London, but I was fine on Monday. I was fine on Tuesday, and today, just all day, from the time I got up, I've been just kind of lethargic. So. Yeah, same
1: thing for me. I oh, kind yeah. of felt not bad um, yeah. getting
2: back. I don't back. feel bad. I feel yeah. you know, I feel okay. I'm just ready for, for bed, so. Right. Hopefully a good night's rest tonight. All right, whatever good night.
1: <laughs> You're ready <laughs> for g'day. bed. Good night. Hey. Yeah. yeah. Hey. <laughs> Well, you're right next to the bed, you and Dana, and I'm not very okay. far from mine either, so.
2: I'm not uh, terribly far from
1: mine. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's I think five good. past one in the morning here. Ouch. Oh, my goodness. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, folks, if you're listening to the show, you're new to the show, you want to learn more about it, the crew, the, uh, the community, and all that jazz, head over to airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, we have a couple uh, smartphone, tablet apps on the uh, iOS platform and the Android platform. Check it out. Just look in the... App Store for Airline Pilot Guy uh, show, I guess, or Airline Pilot Guy app, whatever. You'll find it. And it's free, ad-free, and it's a great way to keep track of the shows and get push notifications, maybe. <laughs> if you're still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> I don't think I've gotten a push notification in uh, months. But, uh, Me neither. Anyway, um, let's see. Social media stuff. You have uh, some Social information media. regarding that?
0: I do. I have... To-
2: bit of information about social media, Uh, you can head over to Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at APG crew. You find all of us together there. You can interact with us, ask us questions, get responses, leave uh, stuff for the community. Same thing on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. So check those out. And let's not forget about Slack this time. Hey, Jeff, um, we were going to mention it at the beginning of the show. There was a lot of um, questions from our, our live chat room, people watching the video about the shower curtain going on behind you no it's not so, a
1: shower curtain oh it's, it's, it's a, said, it's, a uh, it's, it's drapery uh, it does look kind of look like a shower curtain but here let me open it up of course now it's very dark we're,
2: we're wondering if Hillel
1: was behind the, the shower what? curtain. maybe he is hang on
8: halal oh
1: he is hang on Excellent.
8: apg listeners please join us on our slack team <laughs> on slack we share news and ideas we suggest episode and plain tales topics we plan meetups and events to get into the slack team Please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. All
1: right, thanks. Get out of here now.
3: That's not Hillel. That's that Cessna salesman. (laughs) Yeah. They sound oddly similar. Yeah. yeah, I kind of
1: heard that voice on your plane tail thinking, huh.
0: Why uh, does that sound familiar? familiar. Like
1: my plane my tail was like back in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe it was his great-grandfather or something.
3: Oh, relatives. Relatives. Family <laughs> resemblance.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and
4: God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. So long. See you next time. <laughs> I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I open doors for little old ladies. I help them to their seats.
5: Airline pilot guy, i fly a flyer, Oh, it Airline pilot guy,
4: he can't land in heavy fog. Oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. I can land this old plane I can land it just fine
5: Airline pilot guy
4: I'm a flyer Airline pilot guy
8: line, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It
4: ain't and I ain't going.